I realized I was not going to make it through. I was very weak and the bell would not toll after multiple tries. I heard Edward say, I have broken her and will break her again. I will destroy the heart I made for her and she will never enter heaven. There was nothing I could do but let my life and hope slide away. I had nothing left. I felt a searing pain as if a blazing sword had been thrust into my chest. I felt as though I were falling, dying, and I let death take me. I had no fight left. As I fell, I reflected on the false Kundalini. The answer came to me that the true Kundalini was within me and that I could never lose her. She had been given to me by the Father. Edward could not take her away from me. Also, it was the Cosmic Father who decided if I was to go to heaven or not. And I could never lose him. I hadn't lost him. I heard him singing to me the entire time. I realized that my perception of this ritual was not real. This had been a terrible hallucination. I realized that I was not dead. The true Kundalini was within me. The initiation had been done already. This was not the initiation. I did not have to stay immobile. I decided that I was going to move. If I was struck down, so be it. I was willing to stake my life on what I had figured out. ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Rory, and I am joined by the spiritual duo, Jay and Nick. Hello. Hi. On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. back what's going on guys um not much i mean i've been uh staring at this book for a long time now yeah yeah at least two weeks or so yeah uh so this is the first time we are going to be branching into uh kind of witchy stuff yeah talking about magic it is it is 11 30 on a saturday morning that's what's going on with me <laughs> that is true you realize like for most of the world this is like be up and around time right yeah, yes. but that's not Jay's get up and around time. Yes, and for most people in the world, tomato is a perfectly harmless fruit. And for some people, tomato will kill them. Look, I know you're correct, but every time someone refers to a tomato as a fruit, it, it just kills a small part of me inside, even though it's true. It, yes, there's no such thing as a vegetable. Okay, that's not true. Eh, it's kind of a culinary thing. Yeah, but botany-wise, there's no such thing as a, as a, as a, there's no such thing as a vegetable. What? Yeah. Oh. Vegetables are something that humans made up. That's why no culture can agree on what is and isn't a vegetable. We completely conjured the concept of vegetables, essentially, to just divide fruits into bitter and sweet. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Which, I mean, in, its, uh, in it of itself, 
kind of says that there is a such thing as a vegetable. It's just completely moot in terms of science. Yeah. There's also no such thing as a fish. There's no actual strict biological definition of what a fish is that includes everything that we understand is a fish while excluding everything that isn't a fish. Science. So we're covering spiritual alchemy today, scrying spirit communication and alchemical wisdom by Jenny Tyson. Yep, and uh, it was an interesting read. Uh, like like Nick said, it's our first time that we're dabbling in kind of uh, magic, not esoteric thought, so to speak, uh, because we did, you know, secret teachers and and all of that. And this kind of touches on similar concepts, I would say, but it is very um, one path that we're going to be talking about. It is. It, it almost felt a little bit like reading a very personalized religious text. Yeah. And so like this is a religious text that was written with one person's particular spiritual path in mind. And I mean, it was interesting. Yeah, very interesting. You know, I was excited to read the book just because I thought the premise and the idea of it was very cool. Uh, Just based off of reading the introduction, uh, the back of the book when I was standing in a like a metaphysical store. And that's how I stumbled upon it and chose it for the show. But ultimately, I think uh, it was a very interesting read. I think you guys all enjoy uh, some of what we have to talk about today. Yeah. Uh, And I also just do have to point out, this is a very good looking book. Oh, yeah. Very, very, very good looking. I love the the feel and the the cover. Very pretty, very well put together. Well, and also the uh, illustrations inside of the various alchemical seals. Well, I'm sure we'll all have other comments to make about those uh, they're very artfully drawn. I mean, they look they look nice. Yeah, and a lot of the the those illustrations were done by Jenny herself, and she is obviously very talented. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I do love the image of the homunculus that we're given the yeah. the weird yeah. little naked puppet man. Yeah, it's like it's like a weird like uh, Pinocchio like thing. Yeah, yeah, if Pinocchio was a nudist. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the kind of the vibe I got off of it. Nudist Pinocchio with a very narrow head. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it, it like, like, you kind of like shaved his head out of a bowling pin. That's kind of <laughs> the impression yeah. I got there. I, I also love his vacant forward stare. Edward, can you, can you make a single homunculus that looks just like, just a little bit different? Like, can you give this one an afro? Like, <laughs> well, I mean, so I think like the first one that got made tried to kill her. So, so uh, kind of, yeah. Maybe he yeah. shouldn't be taking a lot of artistic liberties. Uh, Wait, so when you make them individualized, they become more homicidal, or just more free spirited? I prefer, and that uh, one was created part with part of Jenny and part of Edward. So, what does that say about the combination of the two? I see. I prefer Jay's in person in, interpretation there. If you the like on a scale cosmically, the more individuality you imbue a consciousness with, the the more homicidal they become. <laughs> I think that that is a great way to look at the universe. I mean, granted, it is a way that will lead to deep depression, but it yeah. is interesting. Yeah. Wait, are the Mormons just desperately trying to prevent further violence? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, everybody be like everybody else, and maybe we'll stop killing each other. Well, I don't know about all that. I, I really think that if we did have a monoculture, we would find other reasons to kill each other. Of yeah. fucking course we would. This was my whole point with visitors from Lanulos. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. think those people were going to eat Woody. Yeah. I think I think that was a cult of cannibals. I don't even think he went to another planet. I think they drugged him. They I took him to was, Vermont. Yeah, yeah, I think he was in the woods of Vermont. I think. Yeah, okay, I'll buy it. Yeah. 
Woods of Vermont. True, but you know, flying anti gravitational sleds. Everyone knows that's Vermont's biggest export. Yeah, yeah uh, Vermont has been keeping fantastic technology from us. There's only 20 people that live in Vermont anyway. The rest are just you know like fake homunculi, have so they, to speak. Have they been on American Song Contest yet? Have no. I been able we're to mock get, them we're, yet? We're gonna get so many fucking angry emails from people who live in Vermont currently. <laughs> Either that or con- or confirmation emails. So if you're in Vermont. And you are or have ever been a homunculi, please email us. Podcast at gmail.com. Or if one of your ancestors participated in the attempted uh, ritualistic cannibalization of Woodrow Derenberger, uh, we'd love to have you on the co- on the podcast to talk yes. about that. Yes, yeah. this is now my objective truth, and I will accept no other interpretation of reality. Uh, yeah. So on that note, are we ready to jump into the summary? We better be because oh, oh, if, we, if, if we're just allowed to keep running, I don't know where we're going to end up. That Please. is that is fair. So let's go ahead and dive in. I didn't bring my swim trunks. God damn it, Nick. <laughs> For the first time in Noctivigant history, as mentioned before, we dive into magic. We explore one person's journey into Enochian magic specifically. Clear audience, scrying, channeling, spiritual mentors, and more in Spiritual Alchemy by Jenny Tyson. The foreword of the book was written by Jenny's husband, Donald. In it, he clarifies that while he edited the book, these are Jenny's thoughts through and through, save, of course, for those bits which came to her from spirits via Clair audience or scrying. Donald has long believed that the only true teachers of magic are those who have already died or other spiritual beings. Which is why Western magical lore is filled with many occultists who received their instructions from a supernatural source. Even Kelly and Dee's wisdom came from scrying to another world. Aleister Crowley's Book of the Law, for example, was dictated to him from a spirit named Awas. The Book of the Sacred Magic of Abraham the Mage was key in the Golden Dawn traditions. Its translator, Samuel Mathers, claimed the rituals therein were received from spirits known as the Secret Chiefs. So essentially, Donald is saying that there's precedent for the experiences that we are about to witness. In chapter one, we dive into Jenny's previous experience. Fifteen years ago, she began this journey while living in Maine. She was struggling financially, physically, and spiritually. While wandering the streets of Booth Bay Harbor, she stumbled upon a bookshop called Enchantments. Here, she bought a book on the Golden Dawn, having not heard of them at the time. From this book, she began learning of evocation, and after a year, attempted her first in the woods of an island off the coast of Maine. Unfortunately, it did not succeed, or if it did, it was not in any significant way. Like most of us that start this journey, she kept going back to the bookstore, trying to figure out how she had messed up, and purchasing more and more books. She soon became obsessed with this mission of contacting spirits. Things began to change in 2007 when she obtained a cell phone for work. For the first time in a decade, she had access to the internet. By then, she was already following the works of Donald Tyson and considered him one of her favorite authors. So, desperate for guidance, she decided to write a letter to him. Following up on the letter, she sent an email a few months later. Eventually, they communicated and continued to do so, and then in three months' time were dating, and in seven months, they were married. She moved to Nova Scotia, where she began to wonder if the spirit's silence was engineered to make sure that this exact thing happened. Some do say that everything happens for a reason. One night, after she had already begun reading and studying Enochian magic, 
she had a lucid dream in which she met Dr. D. She was in a beautiful English grove where he was found sitting casually beneath a tree. She remembers greeting him, but nothing else. Later on, she would come to believe that this was an early experience with astral travel. Over the course of a couple of years, Jenny received intuitive descriptions of angels. She reconnected with family that she was estranged from, which she attributed to aid from these angels. She tried to astral project more with some success, and she tried to channel the sea god Nord and tried to call upon the angel Benapur. But it wasn't until the last week of May 2013 that she made contact with the spirit that would change her life, John D. As a boy, Dee witnessed the dissolution of the Catholic monasteries under Henry VIII, and when he was an old man, saw the witch persecutions under James I. He served under Queen Elizabeth I through her entire reign. He was her political advisor, physician, and spy. During his lifetime, he was regarded as one of the greatest mathematicians in England, and in turn, he was well-known across Europe. His friendship with Elizabeth began when she was a young princess being held being held under house arrest by her half-sister, Queen Mary Tudor. This whole relationship has a very complicated history that, I'm sure, will be brought up here in a little bit. D was, to some, treasonous, as he drew a horoscope which predicted Elizabeth would take the throne and have a long and prosperous reign. And when she did take the throne, she didn't forget D, and frequently sought his counsel and medical advice. She gave Dee open permission to conduct his occult experiments without fear of investigation, imprisonment, or execution. And Dee took advantage of this. Dee sought to speak directly with angels and learn their magic. He wanted this knowledge both for the sake of knowing it and wanted to use it to extend the lands of the British Empire and ensure the supremacy of England. Magical colonialism. <laughs> yeah. I have thoughts. <laughs> Dee had little success, and he eventually hired several professional scryers to assist him. Even still, he enjoyed only mixed results until March 8, 1582, when a man calling himself Edward Talbot arrived at his door. The mysterious visitor was, in fact, Edward Kelly, using a fake name for seemingly unknown reasons. Some believe that he had been paid by Dee's enemies in the English court to trick Dee into performing spirit magic before witnesses who could then testify against Dee in court, but, according to Donald, this has never been confirmed. Their first scrying session together was very productive. Kelly immediately made contact with spirits known as angels, who claimed to be the very same entities that had instructed Enoch. Dee copied down all that Kelly described, which in turn were later collected and published as the Enochian Diaries. Kelly was a wild man prone to drunkenness, lawlessness, and a deep love for alchemy and necromancy. Some say that he made money using this love for necromancy by putting on shows or displays of this power. He would then call on spirits of the dead to interrogate on behalf of noblemen seeking buried gold or secrets. And all of this at the time was very illegal. Dee was intrigued by Kelly. He recognized Kelly's extraordinary skill as a scryer and offered to have Kelly stay in his home. Kelly accepted and immediately ratted out Dee's enemies who had sent Kelly there to begin with. The two eventually became close friends, a bond that would endure until Kelly's death in 1589. And it was Kelly's interest in alchemy which ended his life. He was in Bohemia trying to make gold for the Holy Roman Emperor, which some accounts claim that he was successful and that he enjoyed great wealth for a few years, including lands and a noble title. However, 
He then fell out of favor with the emperor, was imprisoned twice, and died falling from a wall while trying to escape that second imprisonment. And honestly, Kelly just kind of sounds like he was a hot mess in life. Yeah. Now, this system that they uncovered is incomplete. The angels never gave him the most important parts. In fact, they prohibited him from using the magic while he was alive. Nowadays, many magicians use variations of Enochian magic, and many consider it to be one of the most powerful and most dangerous forms of magic. It is a holy magic, after all, empowered by the angels and those beneath them. To use it for selfish or evil purposes is to invite divine judgment, at least, that is, according to Donald. This is why some believe Dee did in fact receive the complete system but never recorded the most important portions to ensure that it never fell into the wrong hands. Donald and Jenny, in an effort to try and see if they could get answers from John Dee, both for Jenny's studies and Donald's books, wanted to try and communicate with him. The method that they chose? Spirit or Ouija boards. Jenny and Donald used specific spirit boards for specific spirits. They construct each board with a certain spirit in mind. If they use a board not made for any individual, they make other additions to it during setup to make it more tuned to the individual that they are targeting. So they made their board, set it up between them, and began the seance, placing fingers on the upside-down shot glass that they were using as a planchette, and then invited the spirits in. They received an immediate response once they began, taking less than a minute from start until the glass began moving spelling out short but very clear messages. The session itself only lasted 10 minutes and was focused exclusively on confirming Dee's identity. One test that they chose was to have Dee spell a word in Latin, as Dee should have been fluent in it. The word spelled was I-V. Later that day, Donald realized that I-V was the Roman numeral for four, and the fourth letter in the English alphabet being D and the letter D sounds like D, and the fact that in life, D would sign his letters with a triangle. The triangle, because it was the Greek letter Delta, and Delta being the Greek version of D. To Jenny and Donald, this was the confirmation they needed that this was, in fact, John D. And with that, we'll go into our first discussion question. Okay. So, let's talk about John D. Uh, He has a long history from being charged with treason, (laughs) to being a spy for the crown. The relationship with Kelly was also complicated. Dee relied heavily on Kelly for scrying and communication with the angels, and Kelly himself was a bit of a party animal, going so far as saying that Uriel, an angel, had ordered the two men share all of their possessions, including their wives. Your wife isn't a possession, Mr. Kelly. (laughs) And this is something that, even though it distressed Dee, he did. His reputation throughout these hundreds of years has gone up and down from people believing that he was mad to people saying that he was a genuinely good scholar. So I want to talk about him for a bit. What do you guys know about John D? And honestly, what do you think about him? So, so there's a couple of elephants in the room that I feel like I, I have to address with, with, with Mr. D just because otherwise they are going to step on me later tonight. Uh, the first one is just the inherently complicated legacy of, of D because he was so, he was, he was so closely linked to the reign of Elizabeth the first. And, uh, according to this book may have directly 
contributed to the colonization of the so-called New World and therefore to the deaths of untold millions. Yeah. Um, so that's not awesome. And that definitely colors my perception of him as a spiritually enlightened individual. And I, I must admit, I am, I am troubled by the lack of discussion of that in this text. Of it, 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 it just feels glossed over, and it feels like it's not even treated at like it, it's phrased as just kind of a boon to show his intelligence and his political cunning, which it certainly is. But you know, for for a spiritually enlightened man that is now one with the cosmic father and can transmit all of this wisdom, it, it seems a little odd that he never thought to go, "Hey, sorry about the genocide I helped out with." Well, I mean, I think the argument that this book makes, uh, they bring up that and after death, uh, you go to a sort of hospital, which is, I mean, not really a hospital. It's more of a, I guess, a stage of being where the spiritual, the spirits who went before you and God and the angels, they are working to repair your soul to get you ready to either reincarnate or do whatever work you need to do in the next world. But they also but, said that the hospital was fake. Yeah, yeah, well... <laughs> I kind of read that as the hospital is is there in a sense, but it's not in a physical place. It's right. more of a state. Uh, I am in the hospital. I'm in a stage of healing. So it's like and a I, purgatory. Yeah, and I think the argument that would be made there by the author would be that, yeah, Dee and Kelly did a bunch of messed up stuff in life, but they got better in the hospital. Like, in the hospital, all your sins, all your your, your evils are bit by bit stripped from you because... Uh, in her cosmology, there is no power in evil, and that demons don't actually have any power. We just give them power by our fear of them, by the emotions we invest in them. Uh, because in her cosmology, all power comes from the cosmic source. Right. Right. Yep. I I'm not saying you're wrong. In fact, I have very similar concerns. And the, the second part of my concern is is not even with D himself. And before I go into this, I just want to tell all of our listeners at home and also the two people with me in this room is I'm not making a sweeping moral pronouncement and I'm not telling anyone that they have to drop their practice or ignore things that are there that are speaking to them. But I do have to bring up the fact that if you are not Jewish, the idea of accessing anything that came from Enoch as a form of magic is messy at best because Enoch's books did not make it into the larger Christian canon. They were, in fact, burned and stamped out and eradicated by the early patristic church because mm -hmm. of the messiness that they introduced to their cosmology to the point where... And and again, this is this is messy because there's not like a general consensus on this the way there is with like Lilith and a few of the other things. But the bulk of people that I have encountered it, 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 within the Jewish community are definitely leaning to the side of you guys had your chance to work with Enoch and you didn't want him then. So we're not sure you get to have him now. Mm -hmm. And I uh, the, the reason that I bring that up, just the, the only reason that I bring that up is, you know, we've, we've talked before uh, way back in Strange Frequencies in episode three. We talked about the idea of 
attempting to activate the occult imagination with things that don't I was going to say with things that don't belong to you, but that's I that's that's a very that that's that's a very uh agitating phrase for a lot of people. Yeah. Um the, it's something that is not culturally relevant to you and that is not kind of embedded into your spiritual culture of the idea of like, well, is it even going to work for you if it's like if it's not you? I guess like my my thought on it is like and I'm for a lot of people, anything, or I don't want to say a lot of people, for a lot of um, people with a Christian background, they believe that anything in the Jewish text is, in a way, theirs because they believe in the same God. The difference is that they believe that Jesus was the Messiah, where, Jew- where Jewish people do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Yes. Some, so, some, people, some people definitely believe that. and. That again, that becomes messy because there's this idea of supersessionism. Mm-hmm. And supersessionism is essentially the idea posited by Christian supremacists that they have replaced the Jewish people mm-hmm. as God's chosen people. And that is largely where that idea comes from of anything that was theirs is now ours. And again, it's like, but you didn't want him. You right. burn like your, it's like your church father's burned Enoch out of existence and we're actually burning your ancestors for trying to work with him back then. This is something that I'm going to go into a bit later in in some of our later discussion questions is there are there are a lot of parallels to to Hindu mysticism in this in this system that she's using. And one of the ideas it, that comes up in his, in Hindu mysticism is that cultural divides do kind of exist for a reason and that where you are born often indicates the method through which you are supposed to reach divine enlightenment and that so there there are and again I am not making pronouncements I am just bringing in making moral I'm not making moral pronouncements I'm just bringing in some of my theoretical frameworks for how I'm interpreting this, again, incredibly messy question that doesn't have clear-cut right or wrong mm-hmm. answers is is the idea of, like, if that was meant for you, the cosmic intelligence would have made sure you were born into circumstances in which that was always handed to you and always made available to you. And, again, the, the idea of the occult imagination and can the circuit complete if you don't have the full cult- cultural emotional resonance to what this thing is. Mm-hmm. I, I see. I see your point, and yeah. I think it's. I think it's very valid. Um, it, in today's day and age, it's harder to come to grips with that, especially when people are no longer those cultural divides are a lot, a lot. I don't want to say looser, but they, in a way, they are because people move and go all over the place and end up being born inside cultures that they uh, shouldn't have or places that they shouldn't have. A a good example is literally everybody in the United States. Yes. You know, none of us should be here. I should be in Ireland. You know, uh, uh, you should be in Ireland. Nick should be in England. No, I'll be in Ireland suppressing you. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah. And my, my final thought on that is that I also have to acknowledge that from... Gen- and I know that this is I know that this has drifted away from from John D, but I feel like this is all kind of tangled up together. 
is that all, in the cosmology asserted in this book, I can understand why cultural divides do not necessarily seem like a significant thing or something impactful enough to to impact decisions like that mm. because, you know, in in this cosmology, we are all one large set of siblings under the cosmic father and universe. Mm -hmm. And I, so I can absolutely understand that perspective and also to just continue with the, with the Hindu sentiment of yes, the bulk of Hindus are like it, it, where you are born kind of dictates that also a lot of Hindus are like, do you think, do, do you think Brahmin gives a fuck? No, it's way the fuck up there and it's busy. Right. right. Which actually, Kind of playing devil's advocate there. I do want to answer the D question, but on this topic, um, I, I I do sometimes wonder though if there is a larger spiritual reality of gods and deities, or even just one god, whatever's up there. Um, how much would it actually care about what might, to many, be seen as just a human concern, and that we are the ones ultimately that draw the borders between countries and cultures? And who are we to say that if you find truth or you find spiritual inspiration in the texts of another culture that you are not allowed to feel that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I'm not saying you're again, I'm not saying you're wrong. There are uh, the idea of cultural appropriation is a very complex issue, which I am not equipped to really explore in depth. But I do wonder how often we confuse um our concerns for, I guess, divine concerns, mm -hmm. like what actually matters when you when you shed past all the human trappings. I think it depends on the people and the practice, mm -hmm. because, for example, the people who practice voodoo are not interested and are not OK with white people taking on that practice. Sure. Yeah. And that and it isn't regardless of my connection to their culture, their lifestyle, and their anything, they are not, they, their lifestyle doesn't want me, so I am not allowed to be there. Right, but my question is, though, is let's say you weren't allowed to be part of those, those communities, and you still found inspiration there in your own private practice, you incorporated uh, elements of Vodun into your work, and you achieve a form of spiritual enlightenment through this, I guess, does it matter that you weren't allowed within the human culture if you still achieve some form of magical or spiritual transformation through it? And I mean, cause like, for example, voodoo, there are white voodoo practitioners. They're rare, fear and far between. And yeah. usually they are a special case that was brought in by an existing religious group. Exactly. Exactly. Those yeah. are exceptions to it. A lot of people who continue to practice any kind of closed magic, do it without the blessing of those people and aren't studying under them. They're just learning, what, they're doing it via the ways that they learn it through Google and Wikipedia. Yes. Right. And that is like, it, it's like, again, I bring up the, the dichotomy and because Hinduism is, is massive and it to the point where calling it Hinduism is largely an umbrella term. Um, there, there, it is possible to convert to Hinduism while being while being born completely outside of it. I just I personally favor the interpretation of if I was supposed to be Hindu, I would have been born into an Indian family or other circumstances would have aligned outside of my control that would have led me there. And I've kind of drawn the personal conclusion of like, if that is meant for me, I'm going to get it next lifetime. Right now, I'm probably supposed to be doing this. 
And also, like any of these things, you can study academically and not practice and still get the same kind of, uh, uh, of fascination and tell, like, knowledge out of, but you just yeah. shouldn't, if it's not one for you, you shouldn't practice it that way. And I, I guess where I fall on this topic really comes down to, um, you shouldn't do things that are going to upset and piss people off yeah. and make people feel like you're shitting on their culture and the thing that's probably most important to them of ev- anything in the world. Yeah. Um, and that's just a general rule for being a human. Yeah. yeah. No, I wholeheartedly agree. I my, my question comes into, and this is one I don't think we're going to be able to answer, is again comes back to, would the gods care? Because I think that that is going to be a very case-by-case basis depending on what mythology you're pulling from. For, um, I mean... For example, uh, there was stories in in ancient uh, Egyptian mythology of certain Romans or certain uh, not Romans pre Romans. What are they? What were they? Greeks. I, I, they weren't Greeks. Though. It was from the Rome area. It was in Italy. The Macedonians. So, something like that. Um, some of them became Egyptian priests uh, within their own cities. Uh, and specifically because the god Thoth that was announced uh, basically would accept all scholars. And so and so Thoth wouldn't care, but maybe Papa Legba would. Yeah. You, you see what I mean? Like if they are separate entities or different shards of a, of a singular manifestation, I feel like their feelings on it are going to be f- pretty different and more complex than what however we would interpret it here on Earth. And that's completely fair. And like, I just want to. I just want to give a quick aside on that, on on that in particular, that, whether or not the 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 Kemet pantheon of ancient Egypt is open at all is an incredibly messy question, and there is no consensus on if that is okay or not. Yeah, but anyway, to jump back to your original question about Doctor D, um, I knew a bit about him. I I knew he was a Queen Elizabeth's personal sorcerer. I knew about the black scrying mirrors. Um, I knew that he was heavily in, kind of considered the father of Enochian magic. Um, I didn't know all the nitty gritty stuff. I, I didn't know that he had been compelled into wife swapping. That was certainly a revelation. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I do. And I've been long interested in trying. Actually, it's been, I've had two books about him on my list for this show since we started. Uh, I have The Queen's Conjurer by Benjamin Woolett. And uh, Peter Aykroyd's The House of Dr. D. I know I want to cover both of those. And I'm, yeah, I was saying I'm sure we'll talk about him plenty more. Yeah. Ab- I mean, he's kind of a, uh, he's a big name. Yeah. He's a, he's an iconic figure within the world of the occult and magic. Mm-hmm. So as we look into books on that kind of uh, wing of the paranormal, I think that he's going to come up a lot more. And I think this was kind of a good entry level book for this topic in that sense. Oh, yeah. Um, but and now to I guess to come come back to uh, how I looked at this book in general, which kind of goes into the topic of cultural appropriation we were just covering. Uh, I I struggled with this book just because again it did feel like I was reading someone else's uh, very sincerely held religious belief, mm-hmm. and that made it difficult, you know, because I when we're looking at these books, I'm often trying to jab holes. I'm trying to right. find the logical inconsistencies that make uh, kind of make or break some of these arguments for me. And I I struggled here because I didn't want to do that because it would feel like, you know, 
being uh, that asshole who uh, you know shows up to Bible uh, shows up to church and starts screaming about the inconsistencies in the Bible. Right, and it feels like you're attacking somebody, which I don't want to. I I think that there are definitely interesting elements here, both in Doctor D's life and in her writings and her path that I'm sure we're going to be getting into that have a lot of positivity to them, and there's a lot of what I feel like probably bits of truth there. Um, but much like uh, Jay was saying, it's not my truth. Like, it's yeah. not the one that seems to work for me or jive for me. Because there were a couple points where, I don't know, it's kind of like you read something and you just get the rec- record scratch in your head yeah. of just saying, ah, that didn't jive right with some level of me in here. No, I, I had a very similar experience to both of you. In the sense of, I felt like I was reading somebody's very personal, uh, uh, very personal journey and very personal uh, religious experience that, uh, in in some aspects, goes counter to things that I believe, but also in other ways uh, aligns with things that I believe. Like it was a very, uh, almost very unique experience in the sense of it's like, well, you know, this part of the book, is, you know, I was like, well, I don't know about all that, and then at the end of the day, it's like, but I like you know, what you're saying, you know, overall, right. I mean, overall, it's a very positive message. The universe is made of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, evil has no real power except for what we give it. It's all about uh, exploring our own consciousness until we can ascend and merge with the God, the Godhead and kind of become part of the cosmic unity that runs the entire universe. Yeah, no. And I, absolutely. That's that is obviously a very good, very great message. Um, <clears throat> that that's being told throughout the book. And um, I guess to answer my own question, uh, my knowledge of John D before this was mostly in passing. I knew his name um, and I knew that he was, uh, like you said, the father of Enochian magic, but I hadn't actually studied Enochian magic um, at all prior to this book. And then prior to some of the research that I did uh, for this book. Yeah. Um. But uh, ultimately, I was very interested and still am very interested in learning more about Enochian magic because angels fascinate me. And I actually, like, I knew that there was this big, like, cosmology of angels. Like, I knew that existed. And I'd read bits and pieces, mostly through, like, Wikipedia pages and articles throughout my life, uh, learning and learning about angels that way. Uh, but I hadn't actually, like, learned the deeper levels of it like this. Uh, to to an extent, and so if you decide to cover more of it, that will be very interesting to me. Just because I'm still very interested to learn more and more about uh, about angels in I general. Mean, me too, especially because kind of in my own path, you know, I I as I keep saying on this show, entertain everything, believe nothing. Um, but there are degrees to that, you know, entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I have to admit, for reasons that I have been unable to get to the bottom of yet. Angels are one that it's like that's a spiritual entity that a part of my body, my mind just goes, eh, that's probably not real. Mm-hmm. Demons, no problem. So maybe that's just my own. The issue is I am uh, more willing to believe in evil uh, than I am in a in the idea of these hyper positive uh, hall monitors. <laughs> but at the same time, I, I you know, I, it's just something I haven't looked too much into. Oh, my God. Christianity fucked angels up so bad. I mean, th- honestly, that's part of it yeah. is because I had you know some experiences growing up with uh, the mainstream Christian church that put a really bad taste in my mouth. And yeah. so there probably is psychologically for me some uh, stopping point there. So there is uh, some doubt and some, I don't know, suspicion regarding anything from that sphere, 
which I have been trying to bit by bit deconstruct and get rid of because it's not doing me a damn bit of good. But but still, I that is definitely one aspect of this book that I struggled with. Uh, like everyone has a guardian angel. There's an infinite number of angels and they all serve a purpose as like an underlying finger of reality. And that's cool and all. <laughs> and we'll get we'll get more into detail and all that. I do have a question specifically about angels, so let's not go too far down that path because we will get to talk about that more. Yeah, my my final thoughts on John D is just I I think he's an intensely complicated figure, but I feel no urge to out and out condemn him in this context, especially because it boils down to the fact that I genuinely believe that Jenny Tyson underwent a spiritual awakening. It may mm-hmm. not necessarily be what the Hindu Buddhist uh, philosophies would term enlightenment, but she she has definitely attained a level of spiritual understanding that I never have. And at the end of the day, if John D and Edward Kelly are who got her there and Enochian magic is what got her there, it is it is not my place to say anything about that, is it? I mean, we, we do have to remember this is I don't like while there are elements in here, such as references to Kundalini reincarnation, that's the kind of smack of a Eastern influence. Uh, we have to remember that. I mean, it's not even a, she didn't even use Enochian magic. Yeah. She used alchemy. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Uh, so because John D eventually kind of stopped being her guide and Edward Kelly stepped into more of a prominent role. Um, and that her alchemical experience mirrored very closely to me the inward journey up the celestial ladder that we read about with Sarawardi, with Dante, uh, oh. with all those old secret teachers from secret teachers of the Western world. Uh, especially going, remember going, they went through various levels like the seals she yeah. sent past. Until you get to the end and what you find, what she found was the universe and the cosmic father, which ultimately is the self because they are the emanation of all of reality. So she went, she climbed the cosmic ladder and found herself. Same thing that all those old masters did. It seemed like she, you know, again, it seems like much like we read in that book, there is this inward journey into the self that gets dressed in the cultural and religious iconography that is familiar to you. Yeah. But. Let's go ahead and keep going because we already uh, hit this question a whole bunch and I want we got a lot of a lot to get through still. So we're going to go ahead and move into section two. Over the course of the next year, Jenny made repeat contact with Edward Kelly and her other teachers. She did this mostly with audio scrying. She started out this communication manually tuning between the stations of a radio, but eventually caved and purchased a PSP7 spirit box this eventually becoming her primary tool for contact. Jenny would record the output and listen to it later, allowing her mind to be directed towards specific bits of sound which formed the messages. She would then feed the recording into an audio editing software allowing her to examine them in detail and look for any potential responses to her questions. One lesson that she learned early on with this style of communication is that she was not the only one listening. As she adopted electronic forms of scrying, the spirits in turn had to learn to engage with that medium. Though, once they do, any sort of spirit can be contacted via radio scrying. After two weeks of communicating with Dee, they both decided to make some adjustments to their equipment. Dee noticed that Jenny was a crafty person, so Dee began having her manually craft several pieces of Enochian ritual equipment to help her improve her focus. While many of these items were detailed in Dee's diaries, 
Many details were omitted, which have made it difficult for modern magicians to replicate them. This time, though, for Jenny, Dee told her how to do it right. Their first construction was that of the Table of Nalvage. This acted as an aid in focusing communications with spirits. Its legs were stacked on round fridge magnets with handmade wax seals beneath each leg as the feet. A large wax seal is placed atop, on which is carved the arcane seal of the truth of God. It was then covered in red silk, and the radio and recording equipment placed atop that. Next came the container, meant to hold the table and its seals. This was an 18-inch cube made of plywood and lined in red silk. The outside was covered in buckskin leather and the top hinged. The idea was to create a portable spirit cabinet which could contain spiritual energy. The last item was based off of spiritualism experiments. They used an item of great importance to Jenny and Donald, and that was a crystal bowl that was given to them as a wedding gift. This tool, dubbed the jukebox from Dee's spirit friend Hubert Hofgarden, was now complete. Quoting from Edward Kelly, quote, Hubert came up with that name. We had a good laugh about it too. Hubert was a man who lived in Iceland. He lived in the 19th century. He was always a good, God-fearing man. When he crossed over, he came to us. He was very interested in what we were doing with the healing of those who had newly come back home. He was certainly very helpful, and we did not know him prior to crossing over. Now, this equipment made it much easier for her to understand these spirit messages. Dee led the conversations discussing spiritual beliefs, the afterlife, and what it was like to die. He wouldn't talk about the Enochian Diaries, though, indicating that it wasn't as important as her spiritual condition. For the first several weeks, Dee taught Jenny basic meditation and trance techniques, and after the third week, proposed that they enter into a more formal training program to address the problems he saw in her spirit, which he called a broken heart, and in return, she would help him with his healing work. She eventually agreed to Dee and Kelly's mentorship, and thus began the next year of her life, total dedication to Dee and Kelly leading to her eventual initiation. She began her training with Edward Kelly and his associate David Blackburn. David was a friend of Edwards in life and a former alchemist and employee of Oxford University. Training occurred daily for two to six hours. Edward would introduce concepts to her and then David would help her practice them. As they progressed, the intensity of these sessions increased. For these communications, Jenny used the jukebox until about December 2013, after which her intuitive abilities had progressed far enough to know what her teachers wanted, even if she couldn't hear them and by April of 2014, she had developed clairaudience and began hearing David and Edward directly. One of the first things she had to learn was to tell the difference between a spirit and a thought form. Thought forms, or according to Jenny, shadows are human-generated spirits, something that all people generate and they can look identical to any other spirit. Quote, they are formed by the presence of ideas or beliefs in a person's mind. They can be created intentionally. In the art of spirit evocation, there is an entire specialty devoted to the generation and use of these shadows. They are most often created unintentionally, even without awareness or belief in their existence. From this lesson, she extrapolates that many stories about spirit and ghost encounters were, in fact, encounters with these thought forms, often generated unknowingly by the residents or the medium. The mind and heart is the source of the haunting, not a true ghost and any good medium, in her opinion, must find a way to filter past the messages given by thought forms 
to find those that come from genuine spirits. In July of 2013, Jenny was struggling with fear, doubt, and depression. And for whatever reason, her fear was worse when she worked with Hubert. The shadow communications would be so strong when he was trying to communicate with her that she wouldn't be able to hear him at all. Those fears, however, were soon abated when the archangel Gabriel took an interest and encouraged Jenny via the jukebox. They didn't stay gone for long, though. During one session, she was plagued by malicious shadow messages. In fear, she prayed for the first time in 20 years, even going so far as to invoke Michael as she believed an evil presence had come to plague her. Hubert was angry that she called on Michael. He explained that she had nothing to fear from him and that he was even confused as to why she was so scared of him. Edward, ever the mediator, said, quote, Invoking Michael reinforced the thought forms generated by your fear. It did not have anything to do with the angel, though he heard you and asked what was happening with you. After that, he went to pray to the Father to help you overcome these fears. Hubert tried to warn you, but it came across much more harshly than he intended. After a time, Dee felt that Edward would be a much better teacher for Jenny due to their greater psychic compatibility. So, Edward became her primary teacher while Dee slipped into the background. The training was focused on two goals. One, to heal her broken heart, and the other was to perform an alchemical initiation. This healing was not just about curing her depression. It involved uncovering buried wounds from the past, exposing them, and then resolving them, also known as um, therapy. Hmm. <laughs> this process first required her to learn how to focus into a trance, and then direct that trance towards a specific goal. This involved intense relaxation and focusing on a particular area, usually the heart. Then she learned how to, quote, open her heart, which involved visualizing her chest opening and then moving her point of view into that opening. The deeper she went, the more she opened her chest and the more she was able to focus until she was giving 100% of her focus to the task. Any stray thoughts or emotions would derail this task, causing her to have to start over. Edward decided that, in an effort to help her open up, use a homunculus. Now, as we know, Edward, in life, was most interested in alchemy, the physical aspect, transmuting lead to gold, and the esoteric aspect, which became key as he trained Jenny. He knew little of the alchemy prior to this, and one of her first lessons was to learn of the servitors that alchemists use, called homunculus. These homunculi were described to her as small spiritual beings created by the alchemist. Her first homunculus, who named themselves People, was informative. It communicated with her via the jukebox, and it soon became very skilled at using this device. The name came to her from unknowingly associating it with the nameless cast of other people, who she knew sometimes helped Edward. As she improved opening up her heart, Edward began placing the puppet inside of her. She would enter a trance, going much deeper than usual, and she would then feel pressure on her chest and the sensation of something slipping inside her. Then, it was pulled back out. They continued this practice every day, as often as three times a day, and gradually the extreme sensations diminished to a simple heaviness when the puppet was inside of her chest. Finally, Edward said it was time to fix her heart. The operation was done over four sessions. Each time she had a spirit help her with her trance, 
while Edward operated the homunculus in much the same way a modern surgeon uses a fiber optic scope. The first session was the most difficult. She slipped into a deep trance to start, and as she experienced pressure on her head, or any time she would begin to feel pain, her trance would deepen. As she began to feel disconnected from her body, the session would end, and she would rest for two days, and then they would go back and do it some more. And this happened a few more times in total before the healing was complete. Like I said, about four sessions. However, not everything transmuted is gold. Sometimes servitors can go wrong. Part of people came from her own elemental fire, or soul flame, and as such, it was directly impacted by her fears and emotional states. And about a month after the surgery, the servitor was becoming increasingly rebellious and difficult for Edward to manage. One day, it feigned David's voice on the jukebox and got Jenny to open up. Usually, she only opened to the puppet while healers were around. This time, she was alone. When it got in, it began damaging her heart until David managed to pull it back out. She experienced severe burning sensations as it was ripped out and a sudden feeling of emotional disconnect, which, on its own, was emotionally traumatizing. People was destroyed, but the damage that they caused took five more psychic surgeries to fix. Edward replaced people with Pickerwick. This homunculi did not have as much autonomy and was not allowed to directly interact without Edward or another healer present. Unfortunately, this one also didn't survive. One day they were doing an open heart exercise when she was distracted by one of her cats throwing a fit and trying to get into the library. When she was startled, she closed her heart, trapping the homunculus inside. It struggled, and that struggle prevented her from being able to reopen her heart as, according to Jenny, it is impossible to open one's heart when they're afraid. Once she calmed down, she learned that its energy, the homunculi, was absorbed into her ethereal body and burned up inside her. And that is going to bring us to discussion question number two. So, let's talk about this healing. What do you think is the symbolic meaning of this homunculus, if there is any? And one of the things that I picked up on this, and a lot of sections in this book, is that some of the techniques she was being taught is things like mindfulness. And other techniques that I've learned and do that I picked up while I was in therapy to overcome my own depression. So... Where does placing a spirit entity in your heart or heart chakra come into play here? And to you, what was the point? Okay, so this kind of hits at one of my core issues with the book, um, which is I, well, I feel like I got a pretty good idea of her cosmology. I, I didn't get enough that all of it made sense. And what I mean by that is like, uh, for example, it's made of a bit of my soul fire. Okay, what is soul fire? What is the element? Oh, do ever does everyone have elemental forces within them? And I, I needed that to be explored. Over. I know alchemically, uh, you know, there are the ideas of the humors, and each humor is associated with a different element, and maybe those are used somehow in the transmutation process she went through. Um, but similarly, like you asked, what did the homunculus represent? The way it was presented in the book, it doesn't represent anything. It is a tool. Yeah. Uh, I, I got the. I kind of saw it as the spiritual equivalent of those uh, machines that surgeons use now to conduct robotic surgeries. Mm -hmm. uh, it is it is a way to, I guess, less invasively uh, do spiritual repair on the interior of someone's soul. At least that's how it was presented in the book. Um, I guess my 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 hang up on this is I don't understand the point. What 
what purpose does the homunculi serve that you can't do without creating a some other spiritual being? I, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't. I think, but the the bigger, I guess, I think the big issue here is for me, um, is I also, I mean, they they explain well, you need to have repairs done on the inside of you, and later on, she's not taking homunculi inside of her heart. She's inviting the spirits themselves. Edward right. goes inside of her at one point. Right. Um, and it, I, I think they presented it where you have to use the homunculi until you can open your heart wide enough for <laughs> Edward to enter. And I, that, I don't, the, my issue there is it feels too mechanical. Yeah. You know, when I'm thinking of spirituality, I like to think in metaphor and symbols. Um, and I, I, that's the issue is it fell apart here because this felt far too much like a, uh, like Peter Biebergall said, don't, uh, confuse Met, uh, mechanics for meaning right and this felt like entirely a mechanical process um again akin to a surgeon's robot arm mm. and i i think ultimately at the end of the day for her it might have been a necessary intermediary step i mean if i'm think thinking okay this is a spiritual experience that's been filtered through her life experiences and cultural upbringing well she was a nurse her her training was as a nurse that's where she that's where she did most of her work I think she's retired now, but um, but still, so I could very easily see, especially later when uh, Edward was explained, well, after you die, you go to a hospital where your soul is repaired. These, she seems to be uh, applying, at least to a degree, a medical screen over this experience. And I get uh, a similar kind of vibe with a lot of the things that she does. There's this uh, like combination of materialist and spiritualist in a lot of what she does. For example. Um, when she talks about the uh, like the radio communications, when she's using the spirit box, she talks about how she utilizes the spirit box as a guide to the messages, kind of like a trance, right? Right. Um, which is what a lot of people believe a spirit box is meant to be used for, like the Newkirks believe, like the Newkirks and Tenny and all of them. They're like, you don't even need a spirit box to be able to do it. You could use a white noise or a pink noise machine, any of that, and get the same kind of feeling because the words happening from the sweeping in the radio are irrelevant. That's not the point. Um, but others believe that that is the point of the spirit box is that the, for some whatever reason, um, the spirits are able to manipulate the, the, the radio in such a way that only the words they want are the ones that come out of the spirit box. And she kind of has combined both of these in the way that she approaches that kind of communication. She believes that while she's listening, um, that she, you know, and in that trance state that that communication is valid, but she also records it, feeds it into an audio recording program, and then, um, you know, uh, listens back to it again, trying to guide to whatever it is. So it's kind of like a combination of both. And I feel like that's kind of the same thing with this homunculi. Like I can't find any symbology with it either. But maybe it was just like that. This is a more materialistic sense of thing to help bridge the gap to get her to that point where she's like, I can open up my heart fully. Right. right. And I think that that is uh, likely even I, I. I I do think, again, another piece that uh, I, I just had struggled with was the, the death of the one homunculi where it gets kind of trapped inside her body because the first homunculi, the one that went bad people, people. Uh, when people went bad, 
I, that I kind of got because I've read stories about, I think, like the Jewish clay golem, mm-hmm. uh, tulpas. There's all these stories of us creating a monster greater than ourselves that then goes rogue. I mean, that's even now become a, a trope in our fiction. You think Mary Shelley's mm-hmm. Frankenstein and onward yeah. from there. And we talked about in Strange Frequencies. Yeah. I mean, even in modern, even in modern, uh, I guess, media, for example, the Hulk is a very similar idea. I created yeah. this monster, which is now loose. Now, granted that has more of a Jekyll Hyde, uh, Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde feel to it. But yeah. still, I, 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 I feel like the, uh, like, like you said, I feel like what the homunculi probably served, if I was thinking purely metaphorically or on a personal level for her, is it, a, it was the uh, bridge that allowed her to get there. Mm-hmm. She needed there to be some, uh, at least on some level, there, she needed some form of a mechanic. You know, something like, it's not just enough to say, I'm channeling the uh, power of the cosmic father to heal my soul. No, there has to be someone in there doing something. Hmm. And again, I, 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 if I was going to put this in light with the other books we've read uh, that are not John Keel, because that's a completely separate topic I'll be jumping on later. It, it very much would seem like all of that stuff was largely the set dressing that her cultural experiences brought to the situation. Right. Uh, especially, I don't know. I, especially cause I, and this could just be me having a failure of imagination i just don't i struggle to see like uh the the spirits of the afterlife these enlightened secret masters uh whipping up puppet boys like whipping up these wooden puppet boys and shoving them into people it just feels too i don't i don't want to say practical that's not the right word uh again i guess it comes back it feels too mechanical it feels too much like a way that we would interpret a spiritual action from a materialist point of view. Mm -hmm. So real quick, just a thought that I had, and then we'll let Jay uh, discuss their their thoughts on it. But I just had a a thought. Something that I learned uh, in therapy is utilizing things like like visualization techniques as something to help me separate uh, my, like my emotions from like my work. Specifically, what I'm the point is I, I sometimes struggle with letting stresses from work carry over into my home life. Like I will, you know, I come home and I'm frustrated because I had a shitty day at work or, you know, I'm really you know frustrated with something that's happening. And I don't, I don't think I would say I take it out on anybody, but I let that carry over and I don't let myself relax because of the stress from work. So one technique that I learned was having something symbolically to um, leave behind. So for example, like I use, I carry a backpack and for a while, what I was doing was leaving my backpack in my car and being like, I'm leaving this here. And with that is all the stresses of work. Once I walk through the doors, uh, uh, once I walk through the doors of my home, I'm no longer going to think about it. It's no longer uh, a problem for me. Uh, And that worked for a time, but as it turns out, I need my backpack even when I'm in the home. So something that I thought of actually just recently, and maybe from the influence of this book, was that I could do something different. Um, And I think what I'm going to do moving forward, just as an example, is instead I'm going to come home and I'm going to take a shower and I'm just going to wash all of that off of me. And once I'm done with the shower, that day is over. And those those energies, that stress, it's done until tomorrow. Uh, Now I am clean and I'm ready to work, do my, have my home life. So I, I kind of feel like maybe that was something that it was working in the same kind of technique or same kind of place for her. 
you know, this was her visualization of needed how to open up to whatever the step the next steps were. I right. don't know. It's just the only thing I could draw any kind of comparison to. So I I did not have a problem with it feeling mechanical because what is met- metaphysics but mechanics we cannot yet perceive. I I'm not sure there there's anything in the universe that can that that can be non-mechanical. Mm. And as for, and I also feel the need to point out that in the book she asked Edward about the homunculus performing soul surgery on her and asked, it's like, have you done this for other people? He's like, we've never done this before. This is something we had to develop because nothing else was working. And uh, because nothing else was working. And I do, I do think that Rory has an excellent point about it largely just being a visualization tool because so much of this book is essentially about her shedding false notions of reality and steadily growing to realize like I am a piece of the universe that has been made flesh and all of the power all all of the power and all of the might and all of the healing that I was asking to receive from the universe what uh, like like uh, it's it's like that roomy quote of it's like you're wandering from room to room looking for the diamond that hangs around your neck like yeah. I, I think that the homunculus was absolutely just a bridging visualization because she did not yet trust herself to perform her own healing and she felt like it needed to come from outside her because she wasn't quite ready to do that. And that also got me wondering about like, well, why do visualization techniques work? Why do visualization techniques help us get us help get us from that a to b point and i started thinking about the divergent hemispheres of our brain about the left hemisphere that is i'm probably getting these mixed up it's like the the left hemisphere that is about the body and about the world and is about putting things into categorizations and making executive decisions and dealing with the practical reality before us while uh, the right brain is playing the banjo and is singing an original uh, song uh, that is 12 and a half minutes long. And I'm wondering if visualization techniques like that are just something that's really good at getting those hemispheres on the same page. I mean, it's quite possible. You're marrying a mechanic with, I guess, an artistic expression. Yeah. Of like essentially the right brain going like, we need to let go of this pain. And the left brain going how the hell do I let go of something I can't hold in my hand? And the right brain saying, do you want me to turn it into a balloon for you? Like, Right. Well, and, and I mean, and that's actually a big issue that I have had uh, when I try to delve into spiritual development of any kind is, you know, people say, okay, well, just meditate. I'm, and I'm saying, there, how? What are yeah. the steps that get me there? So I'm thinking too mechanically. Yeah. Um. So maybe this is something I need to adopt. Now, what I find what I find interesting, though, because we're talking about this is her brain visualizing this thing, is that yeah. ultimately, though, the concept, if we take the book at face value, the concept of them, though, came from outside of her. Yes. It's not, I mean, granted, what is, if the whole, all the universe is consciousness, what is the difference between outside of the self versus inside of the self? But that's a whole nother topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, yeah, I think... I guess what I'm saying when I when I say it's too mechanical, I mean, I, I guess I do feel a little better now that you've reminded me that, you know, hey, 
that they've only ever done this for her. I just, this is just, this is entirely a preference. Like, I just hate the idea of, of, yep, yeah, well, how do you get better? Well, we shove puppets in you. That's how you get better. Well, and that means if you don't, you don't like it, then that technique very likely wouldn't work for you. Right. Which is, yeah. I think, part of what I said, you know, kind of go, harken back to what I said at the beginning of this episode. There's a lot of interesting ideas in here. A lot of them just didn't work for me on my my own personal path, yeah. whatever the hell that is. Oh, no, and I agree. I don't think I would um, like very much having some kind of spiritual entity, non-autonomous of their own or, or not, uh, uh, inside, being put inside of me. Um, I don't think I'd like that ever uh, for multiple reasons. Like I, I would see it immediately as something that is a living real thing, regardless of what they told me. And I wouldn't be able to do that. It would bother me. Mm -hmm. And then like, I also just don't want that, you know? Well, and I, I think there's also, I don't know if you're, if you're, I guess, uh, philosophically, there's a lot of interesting, uh, I guess conundrums there, uh, because again, they're not alive. But they are alive because all, according to her cosmology, all thought forms are alive. Right. Yes. And I, I, I guess I, it comes into the ethics of, uh, even though according to again according to her cosmology, we're doing it all the time anyway. But what are the ethics of intentionally creating a life that is temporary and built for a use? And uh, that goes back to what we were talking about with Amy Bruni's book about thought form or about egregores and. Let's not hark on this too much because I have a question about thought forms. Okay. But it's a good, that's a good point that you bring up and hold on to it. I will hold on to it. I'm gripping it with both hands. I, I mean, I, I, have, I have some similar concerns, and she even talks about that in the book that she, the, the one that like got trapped in her heart when mm -hmm. she closed it unexpectedly. Pickerwick. Yeah, uh, pick, oh, Pickerwick. Yeah, and it's I know like, I love that name. I know, and she was just so... It's like I would have been devastated too. Absolutely. Of like, sometimes of like, I mean, this is just I really liked that part of the book just because it was the one that felt most similar to my experience. Because, you know, when when I pick up my Oracle decks, they are alive. There mm -hmm. are things inside them that like I reach for them and they reach back for me. And sometimes I'll like I'll pick up a deck and it'll immediately be like, baby, what's wrong with you? And mm -hmm. like, it, it's like the one time that I realized one of my decks had been like, had been damaged irreparably and that I now needed to go through a, a process of getting that, that little spirit, a new home. Like I, I felt awful. It's like, it's my job to take care of this thing. And I neglected it. Like I like, so I I don't think I would have been able to do any work with homunculi because the first time I screwed up and one of them got discorporated like that, I would have been like, nope, we're 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 never doing this again because I don't care that you're telling me that it's not real and it's fine that it died. I felt it die and I can't do that again. Yeah, no, I I feel very similar. Yeah, I I I'd understand that. I I mean, it is interesting uh, when you start to look at the world from a pantheism perspective, the idea that everything contains consciousness. Yeah. Because, oh, it even it even affects like because I, I try every now and then I sit back and like, OK, if that was true, how does my what does my life look like from their perspective? And, I'll, and I kept thinking about rappers. It's like the rappers, the trash we throw away has consciousness. How's that feeling? But I had to shut that line of thought down because I cannot feel guilty when I take out the garbage. Okay. Do you yeah. know do you know what visualization helps me for that? 
uh, of it's like, do you remember in in the most recent season of Big Mouth when that tampon fell on the floor and he was like, my journey is complete. Unfortunately, like, yes, I do remember that. Imagine that for like all trash that needs to go into the garbage of it's like my journey is complete. Well, I mean, also, I, I finished their circuit. Also, the, yes. the other issue is pantheism definitely is a mode of thinking that could enable hoarding. No, that's that that's part of the I can't get of rid the of problem. these items. I'll hurt their feelings. Ab- that's absolutely that you know what? That is a good point and uh now I'm going to keep an eye on you about that uh, looking at Jay. No, you should be looking at me because that's literally part of the problem of my parents would have to um allow me to have a going away ceremony for my toys when uh. it was time for them to go to Goodwill of like I had to line them up and say goodbye and thank you for your service to each of them individually. And this would sometimes take a couple of hours uh. and they would just be like, we just have to let him do this. Uh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 that is uh, par for the course for you, though. I was sure. an amazing child. I should have been a cartoon. Uh, I yeah. So I mean, it, but but again, we come back to it with pantheism. It does everything have consciousness, or only what we put into it? Mm. Because remember, the the homunculi in her cosmology is a shard. It's a piece of the self, mm-hmm. or maybe piece of several selves. Mm-hmm. So what if things don't innately have consciousness unless we give it to them? Like we rip off a chunk of our consciousness and put it in there. So, like, for example, how many people out there name their cars or even yeah. more name their boats? They imbue a personality onto it. Not naming your boat is actually a bad yeah. thing. Um, well, and, and similarly, you know, when I'm writing, for example, I'm writing fiction, there does come a point and it's, it's when the usually this is the point where the story gets good. When I know I can finish this and make it something good is when it feels like I've established, I guess, a form, a sort of communication with the characters. Yes. Where it, I'm not having to rack my brain about what they'll do. I'll know what they'll do because it kind of feels like they're there telling me what they're going to do. Right. Yeah. And I, I, thinking about that from a metaphysical perspective, I, I can't help but think, what if those characters, to me, are a bit like the homunculi are to her? Right. They're a piece of the self that has been created to help fulfill a purpose. My purpose is writing a scary story. Her purpose is achieving spiritual enlightenment. I mean, I could I could very well see that and it kind of comes in the same thing. Like the homunculi is similar to like the rapper thing. Like they have completed their journey. That is their purpose. Yeah. You know. I can I can see that. Yeah, and that actually uh, uh granted that that granted the problem with that is I feel really sad when I kill a character I like, but I think that's probably everyone. My oh, yeah. journey's complete. Yeah, except for like I, I write horror, so like it's my job to make some of the deaths like as tragic as humanly possible. It's like, no, 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 I'm gonna kill you at the halfway point of your character development because yeah. that's what's gonna cause the biggest impact. Yeah, that's the but that's the purpose. That's yeah. the yes. point. Yes. Yeah, they just, would be sad if you let them finish their character arc. I. I don't know why, but that sentence blue screened my brain. Uh-huh. Uh, so we're gonna move on. In an effort to gain more insight on angels, Jenny and Donald sat down to interview Edward Kelly on the nature of angels. They did this via Claire audience. What they learned through this question and answer session is that angels act in accordance with the will of the Cosmic Father and work to help us on our paths while incarnated on Earth. Angels do feel emotions, mostly love. They are perfect love, perfect harmony, and perfect communion. They have no form of their own, but can take on any form that they wish. Though, they don't remain in any form longer than they have to, and 
if they linger too long, may lose their spiritual nature until that form dies. Their appearance is often based off of personal expectations and cultural factors, and it's all dependent on the beliefs of the individual. They can see the future, but only when the Cosmic Father allows it to serve a particular function. Angels can possess human bodies, but do so rarely, and only ever for positive purposes. While doing so, they cannot violate the host's free will, cannot harm others, and are ejected if the host does not wish them to be there, the exception being emergency situations. And if they commit a sin against the universe in that body, they can become fallen angels. Archons are not angels. They were spiritual beings who fell into evil and who will be destroyed at the end of ages. They are restrained and cannot do evil on earth any longer because they are unable to take physical form. Archangels act as managers for the other angels, directing their efforts. Demons, on the other hand, are fallen angels, and they have no intelligence or power, though I'm pretty sure the Catholic Church would disagree. They learn the number of angels and the number of human souls never changes, though the number of angels is eternal. Angels do not have free will apart from the Father's will, and if they violate his will, they fall. So I guess they do have free will, but they're just not allowed to use it. Oh, God, the endless conundrum. Yeah, that was another weird question I had that I don't think I'm ever going to get an answer to. In Chapter 7, Jenny goes over her alchemical initiation. This was a three-day ritual which awakened and raised her kundalini energy and incorporated images of Western esotericism and alchemy. Quote, Spiritual alchemy is a process of spiritual development that leads to greater purification and unity with the divine. It is both a long-term growth process and an initiation. Spiritual alchemy is most often described in terms of a gradual spiritual evolution. But in this chapter, I will present the unique ritual of alchemical initiation that I was led through by Edward, Gabriel, the Cosmic Father, and the universe. And in the weeks leading up to it, she primarily worked with David Blackburn. This initiation was akin to a direct introduction to the Cosmic Father and Universal Mother, or rather, the process of making her aware of their presence within her own soul as well as the souls of every other human. Quote, The symbolism of the ritual is not so important as an understanding of spiritual awakening and an ability to separate the symbology from the reality of the experience. You may strongly desire to have an awakening experience and try to duplicate the ritual described here, but if the symbolism does not resonate with you, the ritual will fail. Your initiation requires symbols that speak effectively to your heart. What speaks to your heart effectively is very individual. It all began on May 1st, 2014. She was not warned ahead of time that the ritual would be happening. Edward told her the morning of. She was instructed not to eat or drink anything except water that day and to avoid all pills or decongestants. Jenny had, at the time, chronic sinus issues and a major addiction to the sinus medication. Edward told her that after this initiation, she would never need to take these meds again as the initiation would alter her body as to make them unnecessary after a period of struggle. Oh, oh okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, this was definitely uh, the, the line that drew me out of the book the most. The, mm -hmm. the whole, you don't need your medication now thing. And that's just because to one too many bad stories for people being told that and then going, you know, losing their lives or their, their sanity because they should have stayed on their medication. Yeah, and that's actually a really good point. And I'm going to say this. Um, I do not endorse going off of medications that your doctor prescribes you. Um, 
And I would not equate going off of even chronic sinus medications to something like medications that you would take for your mental illnesses. Do not, do not think that that is, a, that is an acceptable all, like alteration or, uh, or, or another option is that I can just uh, achieve spiritual enlightenment and therefore I don't need my meds for my schizophrenia. Don't, don't do that. Um, doctors are doctors for a reason. If you genuinely feel that your medication has begun to negatively impact your life and your prescriber is not listening to you, seek out another prescriber because even if it is the right choice for those medications to be filtered out of your care system, it, it needs to be done with supervision. Yes. Uh, late last year, I went off my psychiatric medication without supervision because I'm an idiot and I should not have done that. Mm-hmm. It's very dangerous, and um, I, I don't, don't do that. This situation for Jenny was very specific and very different, but I, do not want, I, I don't want to like preface it and say that this is any kind of answer to going off of medications that your doctor has prescribed to you. So that's a good disclaimer. Thank you for bringing it up, Nick. Yeah. No problem. You are, you, are, you are not Jenny Tyson. Seek out medical help. Right, and I don't know, this is me personally, but this might just be me. I would very much struggle to trust any any spiritual voice that told me to go off my meds. Yeah, no, I wholeheartedly agree. She was then told that she would never see or work with David again, and that she would never be a healer. This confused her greatly as she believed this whole time that she was training to be just that. Despite receiving no explanation, she decided to trust Edward and go along with whatever was happening. Gabriel came that same night, and told her that she was to remain completely still and silent while he was in the room, as to do otherwise would be an insult. Despite intense soreness, as she had an injured hip from an accident shoveling snow and chronic back pain, she managed to hold that position. He then told her that they would take her husband's life that night, after which she must return to her family in the Midwest. At the mention of this, she heard bat-like creatures running through the house and Donald struggling to breathe in the next room. This lasted for an hour before she was released to go to the bathroom and discovered that Donald was alive and fine. Gabriel later told her, quote, You were deceived by evil. Only God can determine when someone dies. Why are you afraid of me? I do not wish to hurt you. I love you. After a break, she went back to the bed where the ritual was taking place. She heard the creatures again, and Donald laboring to breathe in the next room. She heard bells tolling and felt a presence she believed to be the angel of death. She was told that Donald was dead and that she needed to run to the neighbor's house to call an ambulance, which she promptly did. Only, when she returned, a very confused Donald greeted her at the door. When police and ambulances came, she again obeyed Gabriel and told them nothing, claiming that it was a reaction to a very vivid nightmare. She didn't explain anything to Donald at the time, still holding on to her childhood fear of angels. Again, she was told that she was deceived by evil. Edward explained, quote, You were hallucinating. As we started to build up the kundalini energy within your body, you began to hallucinate that Gabriel was going to hurt you and Donald. At that point, we realized how dangerous it was, and we had to have you immobilized for the rest of the initiation and recovery period. You were communicating with shadows that you had generated from your fear, and this is what generated the thought forms you experienced during this part of the initiation. Gabriel never spoke to you until the end, when you realized that you were hallucinating and that Gabriel was not going to hurt you. 
Gabriel cannot communicate with you when you are cringing and sobbing in fear, and we would never hurt you in this way. Jenny tried to sleep that night, to no success, but was soon introduced to the teacher who would replace David, the universal mother. The universe comforted and mothered her, helping her through the night as more hallucinations terrified her. She explains that these visions were her deepest fears made manifest, fully uncovered by the raising of her energy by the spiritual helpers. In other words, she was made to quite literally face her inner demons. Nothing Gabriel had said was actually him, including the omens of Donald's impending demise. Her training, she learned, was ultimately about identifying and controlling the shadows that surrounded her, and the first step in that is gaining an awareness of their existence. As the ritual activated her deeper spiritual faculties, they became more and more apparent to her. The more she feared, the worse it got. It wasn't until she surrendered her fears that the visions ended. Killing or eliminating or rather overcoming these shadows is done by depriving them of their source. No pain, no fear, no guilt equals no shadows. She finally passed out and was awoken at daybreak the next morning. She had a vision of being taken into a room. Despite not being able to see well, because her vision had been veiled for her protection, according to Edward, but she sensed that she was in a misty, circular room. She could feel that Edward, the universe, and Gabriel were all there with her. And she was then told that the next stage would involve a spirit, known as Kundalani, who was the father's love. Of course, she latched onto the Eastern philosophy connotations of the name, though she learned that this name was just because it was the easiest way to express the nature of the spirit to her. One thing that Jenny and Donald want us to understand is that all of these things that they talk about were not describing literal events. They were symbolic of the true reality that was occurring, and the finite human mind cannot process eternity, so it handles journeys to the astral in symbolic images. Quote, I want the reader to begin the process of learning a new reality, changing from commonly held perceptions to a deeper understanding of a far greater reality, which is the journey described in this book. An example of this symbolism is Kundalani, as love of the Father. Another is of the seven seals revealed to me during my initiation that are the gateways to divine unity. The homunculus entering my opened heart is another example. This was part of the transition from the concept of I to the concept of absolute unity. As she progressed, she came to understand that Kundalani was the part of the Cosmic Father that lived within her and within all things. Now, throughout the initiation ritual, she ascended through the seven gates and seals, each meant to mark the boundary from one level to the next. The seals were alchemical in nature and represented the planets and metals from lowest, lead, to the highest, gold. While she was blind during the process, others described what was happening for her along the way. They warned her some of this would be incredibly painful, but that they would not let her fall. Edward explains the gates to her by saying, quote, The first two are not too bad, but in the third you will find pain worse than anything you've ever felt. Remember, the pain will be brief and you will be through it quickly. You must not fear Kundalini or the pain. She will not come up if you're afraid. You must open and go as deep as you possibly can, deeper than you would have been before. Touch her, invite her up to the first gate, the seals will be unveiled, the bell will ring, and you will pass to the next gate. So to begin, she entered a trance and started to go within her heart, deepening the trance and opening herself 
She felt her body slowly go numb as she pushed her consciousness inward. She failed on the first dive and on the second, but the third time the universe guided her down. Her body went fully numb and she felt a small tingle and a stirring within her. Her consciousness then rose with Kundalini to the first gate. She moved through this one, then through the second. When she reached the third gate, she was warned not to move or cry out or to fear the pain. She was beset by a feeling of uncomfortable fullness, restricting her breathing, but not bringing as much pain as she was told to expect. She then passed through the fourth, fifth, and sixth gates, feeling a rising sensation as she passed through each one. When she finally reached the seventh, she heard the voice of the Cosmic Father himself. With a voice as if love was embodied in a sound, that sound was so potent her body shook with the desire to be close to him. He asked if he could hold her, and of course she said yes. He then asked if she would let him open her heart, and she agreed. She felt her heart open and his pure, loving presence flow in. They merged together, love embodied enfolding her. He told her that he remembered her very well and knew all that she had been through, and that he was always going to love her. He then sang to her an unearthly, heartbreaking, beautiful sound, and suddenly she was pushed back into her body. But this was not the end. She was then told that she would need to rise through the gates a second time, this time to let the universe into her. She had to learn to surrender to it, meaning not to lose her individuality, but to allow her spirit to be enveloped by the universe entirely. So, she re-entered the trance, and the universe led her deeper into her own heart. She felt as if she were slowly dancing or drifting downward like a drifting sea of love. When she finally returned to the physical space, Edward told her to raise her hand so Gabriel could mark it with a seal, which could then only be removed from the father. Then, the initiation was done, and the true healing could begin. And with that, we're going to go into our third discussion question. So, I want to talk about the shadows, because it comes up a lot throughout the ritual. It's a, like a, both an attacking feature of it and just a big part of this whole story. And this is honestly the thing that I struggled with the most, because throughout this whole book, they're called thought forms. But the way that the book describes these thought forms is significantly different than my understanding of egregores and tulpas. As egregores and tulpas are creations of intent, these seem to be mostly creations of emotion. So the implication is that these things are living creatures from our negative energies that we have to overcome and eliminate. So do you think that she is saying that all shadows and shadow people are these thought forms? And if so, how does that play into what we've learned in books like uh, Walk in the Shadows? And how does that compare to tulpas and egregores? Um, I, I struggled for similar reasons uh, with this. I, I think the uh, agreement I kind of came to with the book uh, was that the shadows, to me, again, thinking uh, metaphorically, those are a great visualization of the sorts of internal distractions and conflicts that might get in the way of a spiritual development. Mm -hmm. So I didn't take her at a literal, I didn't take her literally. I didn't think, well, we are constantly creating actual like demonic entities around or negative entities around us all the time that are hounding us. I took it as a way of visualizing those sort of intrusive thoughts that tend to lead us towards the worst aspects of ourself, you know, 
uh, for, for me, depressive thoughts, things like that. And I, I took it very similar, similarly at first, too. The problem that I encounter is that you would then say things like, uh, a medium has to be able to tell the difference between shadows and real spirits. That implies that these things are always around, and it's more than just to our individual self. Yeah, it, it, quite possibly. I And that may be very much what she believes. I I think for me that seeing them as an, a visualization of kind of the process of clearing out the dust from our own head, clearing away the things that don't longer serve us, I feel like that is, I guess that has more meaning to me mm-hmm. uh, just as a, on a personal level. Uh, regarding how this relates to egregores and tulpas, I think, I, I don't know, the shadows seem very transient, very temporary. So if I, if I was going to entertain the notion, yes, they're real, they're all around us, they're constantly talking to us, I think the difference would, again, like you were saying earlier, come down to intent. A tulpa and an egregore is an intentional action. You are, enact- I mean, usually it's supposed to be. You're right. enacting. I was going to say it can be. Egregores can be formed by collective uh, consciousness, but uh, that alone is also intent. Yeah, so it, it really comes down to, I feel like probably if shadows are real, egregores, tulpas, those sort of uh, intentionally created thought forms maybe are just a more permanent form of a shadow because shadows come and go. You know, mm-hmm. They're there until you forget about them, then they cease being fed. Now, one thing I did find uh, very interesting, and this is just a, a kind of a connection here, uh, shadows operate a lot like servitors do in certain magical practices. Uh, servitors being these, uh, they're kind of like the homunculi, to be honest. They yeah. are these... I mean, Jenny even used those two terms interchangeably. Yeah, yeah. Th- they are... They are not so much a living thing as they are an, sort of a symbol you create or an image you create or a character you create whose job it is is to serve some purpose in your life. So maybe you're saying, okay, maybe you'll make a sigil, right? And that sigil is one you uniquely made. This is kind of a, a chaos magic way of looking at it. Uh, and that sigil was was basically you took the sentence, I will, I will make six figures by the end of the year. And then you took each individual letter there and you kind of mishmashed around with them and you played with them and you took them apart to their individual lines and you assembled a symbol from them. That's basic sigil craft in some magical traditions. The whole idea is then you're supposed to take that sigil and meditate upon it. It's called charging the sigil. You're putting your will into it. And then once your will is invested into it, you release it. You kind of basically take that idea that you've been building and you shoot it into your subconscious. And then you stop thinking about it. And, and the whole idea is it's supposed to be in the background working pretty constantly. And you're not supposed to completely forget about it. You're just not supposed to be paying attention to it. And the way that you get rid of them, much like with the shadows, once they've served their purpose and grant their purpose being, I don't know, working through your subconscious to make that eventuality a reality by change, modifying your behavior and your perceptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way you get rid of them is you stop feeding them. Just like the shadow, you stop thinking about them you st- you can basically force them out of your mind entirely and once you do that they no longer exist so it almost seems like in her cosmology a shadow is an, is sort of the uh polar opposite of in polar opposite in terms i guess morality or uh, spiritual energy of those of those uh servitors they are one they, they are staff that you created accidentally who are not doing you any good um and oh, that was just a connection that I made where I could see some, uh, I guess, outside occult basis uh, in her, what she was talking about with the shadows. 
largely like you were saying earlier though i think the shadows is definitely one of the pieces i struggled to uh work with the most here in this book and i i think a big part of that is it and this is entirely a personal preference thing i feel like it takes the struggle of of stopping those intrusive thoughts of stopping those negative parts of ourselves and it makes it a sort of i don't know it, it takes the it it takes that part of you out of yourself if that makes sense it, yeah. it makes it in a way it almost seems like it becomes less your responsibility even though yeah you have to deal with the shadows to achieve spiritual enlightenment but it, it it still externalizes what is ultimately in my mind an internal barrier that you have to overcome and i wonder if that image or that idea of the shadow it's another visualization visualization technique yeah but i wonder if it's also going to get in the way right like you're saying i'm not having these thoughts this pesky shadow i can't get rid of is having these thoughts now mechanically from our psychologically there may be no difference there but at the same time i do wonder if uh putting all so many mechanics and rules for reality on the spiritual path will ultimately trap you in a corner yeah if that makes sense no, i no, I, no, I know I'm I, got, this is a very loosey-goosey no i see what you're saying <laughs> yeah and i think it's i think it's a valid point it's almost like trying to shove off my own personal issues and saying well i i'm not having this it's not it's not me it's these shadows and it's you're not it's almost like not taking accountability for your own thoughts right well i mean and it even says in here like yeah you are responsible for your own shadows and you you can banish them but it still is nothing that was done with any active will i mean even at post enlightenment supposedly you still suffer shadows right um so it's just i i just struggle with that i think i think it takes a little bit of of the responsibility away yeah no i see your point um i i respectfully disagree okay that's fair yeah i do not i do not feel that it some people probably do could use the concept of shadows as a way to dismiss responsibility over their own thoughts but I actually don't think that's the way Jenny was using them. It, weirdly enough, this was another part of the book that I really resonated with just because I there are times where I've been doing oracle or tarot readings with myself and it has seemed to confirm a lot of my worst fears or it feels like the deck is out and out insulting me and I've... I'm progressing to the point where I no longer accept that just at face value. I tend to take a step back and go like, am I in the right headspace to be doing a reading now? Mm -hmm. Did I actually shuffle this properly? Because if, you know, I have ADHD, if my brain, if my mind drifts too much or starts to go to too many dark places while I'm doing the shuffling, the reading gets all fucked up because, you know, me and me and the spirit in the deck or whatever are trying to have a conversation and again i i treat i treat card readings largely as ink blot tests mm-hmm. i cuz i i do kind of believe in the concept of the universal unconsciousness and the tarot is just essentially a translator box of helping me figure out things i already know but basically like i i feel the the way that jenny was dis- the way mrs tyson was describing shadows was her essentially using them in the same way of like almost as an ink blot test of like this is popping up 
and it's saying horrible things to me, what inside me is making me feel like I'm so worthless? I'm creating a shadow that sounds like David to berate me. And her kind of, it, and her, I feel like she is just using that almost as a tool to further explore the parts of her psyche that haven't been fully healed. And this part of the book is another reason why I feel I felt the need earlier to keep bringing up Hinduism and Buddhism, even though you're right, that is not at all the path that she was using is she did describe, you know, the cutting uh, Donald described the cutting off ritual in mm-hmm. Tibet. And again, that that is something that is very strong in Buddhism of the idea of like, because you know, Buddhists believe a lot of Buddhists believe in multiple levels of enlightenment, multiple stages of enlightenment. And there is an idea of like at a there is a certain point where you are enlightened, you know the truth, but your grasp on it isn't steady, isn't firm. And if you give in to those demons that you think are cutting you apart and cannibalizing you, you're going to lose it and you have to start all the way over again because you lost it. And that's essentially how I understand the way that she is describing shadows is putting it through the Buddhist lens of these are chains I am creating for myself that are attempting to anchor me to the karmic cycle. And to put them outside of yourself is not the renouncement of responsibility. It It is the claiming of your core truth of this is this is coming from me, but it is not me. This is one of my chains to the karmic cycle, and it is my duty as a student of of the Buddha. It is my duty as a student of the cosmic father father. It is my duty as a person seeking enlightenment to shatter that chain because even though it came from me originally, it is not serving me, and it will only exist to keep me here yeah and i I agree like I think that that for the most part, especially when she's talking about the shadows uh, during the actual initiation, I believe that that is exactly what she was going through and that that is the vast majority of what she's talking about when she says and talks about shadows. The problem, and I guess the hang-up that I get from from the shadows, because ultimately I agree like that is it's a really good technique to use to overcome those kind of uh, anxieties and fears and worries and the all the intrusive thoughts that you have is to, I don't want to say give it a name, but give it something so that you can then overcome, defeat, get rid of it in some way to continue your path on enlightenment. Uh, my hangup comes with the constant comparison to everything, everything that isn't an angel or isn't a uh, isn't um, one of these other named things is a shadow. Right. You know, or it, anything that isn't, uh, or the comparison that ghosts can, might be, or are just shadows, that doesn't line up with um, just about anything else that we've read. And that is completely valid. Well, and I, I also, not to kind of build on that, I think that is another aspect I struggled with just because. I mean, I think this has been pretty clear on the show. I like having all the doors wide open to every possibility, and I feel like her cosmology shuts more doors than it opens. It says, well, cryptids aren't real. Ghosts aren't real. All of those are just signs that I'm the asshole. Right. And right. And I, I agree that in a way, I think it does kind of close the doors to it um, because 
even when she briefly talks about extraterrestrials, it was very uh, nuts and bolts in the in the idea that it, you know these are just other living beings elsewhere. There's no room for the interdimensional kind of theories. No rooms for any. No room for any of that kind of stuff. And that's fine. Um, it just doesn't add up to some of the other things that we've talked about and other things that I personally believe. Well, and also I just want to point out I did, and this might just be me reading like she only gives what like two sentences to the effect to the idea of aliens right yeah and i i really did feel like those were added begrudgingly yeah. like i kind of got the feeling of yes and i guess there's also aliens and they're doing their own spiritual things too moving on yeah no i got i got a very similar uh similar vibe to that but i guess the majority of my my point is it almost seems like shadows became a catch-all in this book the idea of shadows and thought forms became a catch-all for anything that couldn't be explained within this uh, within this cosmology that she's been developing, and that that bothers me because shadows, in the sense of the initiation, I wholeheartedly agree. One that those could exist. I don't necessarily think that they are always a physical thing, but absolutely used as a visualization technique to help you overcome it. That's amazing, but. There are shadows that we know exist in this, no, in quotations, that we believe exist in this world. We did a whole book on them, and there's no room for them within these shadows. And that doesn't make sense to me. Well, and I think that's the thing is if you're, if you're cosmol, I, I have issues with any cosmology that relegates uh, or a cosmology or theory that relegates the vast majority of the phenomenon to this other bin. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's just it, where it, because the shadows become an almost the shadows become the glue that creates this perfectly sealed environment of this cosmology, because anything that betrays the core message of the cosmology can just be pushed into the shadow category. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. That's me. It just. Again, that could come down to I I fundamentally believe in limitless discovery. I believe that we should perpetually be learning, and I believe that it's a giant, vast, crazy world so far beyond our comprehension. We'll probably never get to the bottom of all of it, and it just doesn't work with that, with this cosmology. You know what I mean? Like this is, I, I guess, it, it again, I come back to it. It's too mechanical. There's too many, I guess, hard and fast, this is the exact nature of everything for my tastes. Now, again, this is just personal tastes. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Th- so I, I, I don't like having a lot of rules in my spirituality. I like it to be metaphoric and very free form and very invested fluid. in, yeah, fluid based off your, in, in uh, based off your personal designs. And she makes it clear that it is, it is your personal path, but sh- that concept is at odds with how many, with her very clear belief. And, and again, it's, it's her right to believe it in that this is the path this is you know shadows are real they do this spirits are doing this in the afterlife the god figure is this entity you know what i mean it's too direct it it puts things too much into terms that we humans could understand with our monkey meat brains right and and i don't disagree with those statements like i I, I agree with all of the personal aspect, like all of the, the personal relevance that shadows have, but she did lose me when we get to the point of anything that is not of cosmic father is inherently a shadow because uh, 
again, going back to the idea of respecting our neighbors here on Earth, of it's like, well, then you've taken every other religious tradition and essentially punted it into the garbage. And, well, and any other god is just a, a branch of the Cosmic Father, according to this, and that's fine. If we look at Cosmic Father in the universe as the universal consciousness, that's fine. I can see that. Um, but I didn't... I didn't get the vibe that that was her intention in writing it is something like that. I can translate that for myself to be like, well, how I would see it is that the, uh, the, you know, the cosmic father, the universe is the universal consciousness. They themselves together, that is what they are. And that makes sense to me. Um, and that like, like that I can, that I can vibe with, so to speak. Um, but I, I don't, like you said, I don't like the idea of just throwing everything else into that other bucket because it doesn't necessarily line up. And she she had that moment where she was talking about she discouraged people from using uh, things like uh, summoning circles and mm-hmm. amulets and other things to protect themselves because she's like, well, you have to understand that that entity is just a shadow and you're feeding into it. Yeah. And I'm like, that's, I feel like that is almost the more dangerous idea of assuming that these things can't hurt you. Particularly, it's like, if it is a shadow, if it is a shadow, it's clearly a shadow that came from someone else and has already become powerful enough that it can operate without that person. And I feel like it, just the level of like you, you need to pay some respect to that kind of like approaching an allegedly tame mountain lion. Yeah. And also the idea of shadows, demons, anything negative, um, that they have no power, that evil effectively isn't real, um, is unequivocally false. Like maybe the demons have no power over us specifically. But to say that nothing out there that doesn't have the, the, the light of the cosmic father, so to speak, in it has zero power and isn't evil because effectively evil isn't real, that, that can't be true because evil is real uh, and it's everywhere in its own way. Evil lies within us, every single one of us. It's part of what we have to overcome. And that is the point of the shadows to me, right? Is helping us overcome these evil tendencies that we have. But that within itself says that evil is real. So I don't like the idea of saying, well, a demon is only given the power that you give it. But that that doesn't make any sense. I, I I think the issue there, though, is also, okay, if we assume that anyone ever has been possessed by an entity that we would perceive as a demon right if if possession is real if any form of malicious haunting is real uh as you know many of the books that we've read have have alleged then this then thinking of them only as shadows ultimately it is saying the victim is the one ultimately to blame for their trauma right because they created the source of their trauma right and that now that's say you know Again, I, I'll entertain anything. Sure, this may be the way things are. I don't think it is, uh, but that's just me and my, you know, whatever the hell I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> um, I, 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 don't, I don't like that idea. I do think that there are other intelligences we share this world with that are maybe not so, not so friendly. I, I struggle, uh, like Rory, sometimes I struggle to think maybe there isn't such a thing as a truly evil ghost or something like that. Maybe they're most of them are misunderstood, but I do think 
there is something uh there is a dar- uh, uh, there is a shadow to the light mm-hmm. you know what i mean there is an opposite and maybe that's my own dualistic thinking getting in my way uh but i know i've encountered things in my life where they didn't feel like they were I've encountered things, uh, situations or places or had sightings of entities in my life where I didn't feel like I was uh, seeing some externalized piece of me. It it felt like a distinct other that had a very distinct malicious flavor to it. And how do you explain shared experiences like that? Right, because you and I saw that same entity in the uh, in the host factory. Exactly. How and do you how do you explain that shadow entity? Because it was a shadow in physical nature that we both saw how do you explain that outside of the you know this entity had some kind of dread evil feeling with it like that doesn't it didn't feel like a part of me i no, can, no, I can it, say that well especially because how startled we were by its presence like right. we did not go in there expecting to really we I went in there with zero expectations of finding anything because yeah, no, I, I thought it was mostly a joke. Yeah, so did I. I well, and also I didn't like your boss who pointed out the location to us, and I think I didn't think he would actually find a location that had anything going on, and so it was it was very startling. And I think it's moments like that 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 make me highly doubt the shadow theory. Yeah, I mean, like it, to go back to the second book we ever did, uh, Demon at Brownsville Road. The Cranmers had no idea how incredibly haunted that 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 building was because the previous owners told them multiple times it was a perfectly safe perfectly normal house Mm -hmm. and we now have later evidence that not only were those owners lying the owners before them lied to them Mm -hmm. so that was three groups of people all of whom had been misled about the nature of the energy inside that house telling what appears to be more or less consistent stories about what happened in there. And how does that fit with stories like Alma Fielding, where she had her own traumas? Sure. Um, But ultimately, there were still forces around her that were likely not in her control. Yeah, it's it's like if if the shadows... Assuming that she wasn't a complete fraud. I think half of what Alma did was fake, and I think half of what Alma did is something beyond our understanding. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah, I think that 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 pretty much sums it up for me. I I I think it's an interesting idea. There's a lot to chew on there. I I I don't think I'm going to be adapting adopting it into my own whatever, mm-hmm. uh, my own perception of the reality. Uh. But I mean, at the same time, again, if it works for her and yeah. it got her to a better place, great. Yeah, that, that's amazing. That, that's all spirituality. That's all occultism ultimately is about is transforming the self to become our I, hopefully our better self. Yeah. No, and uh, if this got her there, fantastic. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would ever get me there. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I don't think it's going to be any part of my own practice, but I do think it was an interesting thought exercise, so to speak. Yeah. Now that Jenny has gone through initiation, she is ready to begin the next level of her healing. Here, she met an angel known only as the Healer. She was told to cover her eyes and remain motionless while it worked. The Healer said that she had a hairline crack in her hip. Despite her growing discomfort in her back and head, she obeyed when she was told to remain motionless for an hour while he did his work. During the healing, she induced a trance state. However, the healing failed for seemingly unknown reasons. This prompted the Cosmic Father to appear again. 
He said that he had seen enough of her suffering and will heal her hip and sinuses, as he claimed that there was a large and dangerous polyp in her left frontal sinus. She felt his touch throughout the healing and felt soft popping sensations wherever he worked. Since that day, she has not needed any sinus medication and can breathe normally. After the healing, Jenny began another ritual, this one called the altar ritual. She began to run a fever after her healings and the shadows had become louder. She had been without food since Wednesday and hadn't had water in over a day. Donald, understandably, was growing more and more worried, especially as she was told that she could not explain any of what was going on to him. When it began, she was instructed to again enter a trance and raise Kundalini through the gates, and she had to remain completely immobile while she did so not even swallowing or blinking, as doing this would delay the gate process if she kept swallowing saliva. Eventually, she had to surrender control of her swallow reflex to the universe, quote, universe helped me to locate the cranial nerve and dull its sensation to allow the saliva to run past it. I was actually able to feel the nerve and still the swallowing impulse with her help. When Jenny arrived at the third gate, she was told that there was no turning back, that if she abandoned her quest or faltered, that she would die. At the fourth gate, her clairaudience went wild and had difficulty hearing her guides over the rising voices of her shadows. She does not remember rising through the rest, just a psychedelic swirl of colors and images. Then, when they were done, she could hear the Cosmic Father singing again. Edward, during this time, was growing increasingly angry with Jenny as the shadows and hallucinations became harder for her to control. But we must remember that this was not Edward, but a shadow itself. Quote, when the Kundalini energy is awakened in an individual, there may be hallucinations and altered perceptions. These have nothing to do with the reality we are experiencing as facilitators of this ritual. We had to immobilize you so that you would not hurt yourself or Donald during this dangerous period immediately after the energy was awakened within you. The shadow Edward then scolded her, and told her that she had raised the wrong Kutalandi energy before casting her back down to the first gate. And this, as just a side note, is one more aspect that kind of confused me, because wouldn't this count as failing, and if so, why didn't she die? I, I don't think... I don't think her dying... I, I don't know. I, did they make it clear that her dying, saying her dying, wasn't said by a shadow? Mm, no. So that could have been just a shadow, but at True. the same time, later on, Donald uh, relates her experience, like uh, Jay was talking about, to Tibetan monks in kind of one of their final ordeals. Sometimes they can lose their mind. Yeah. They can go insane, and that's what he feared was going to happen to her. So I don't know. Um, it's, it's definitely a question. Yeah, no, and I, that was just one of those parts that kind of confused me because, uh, I mean, like, I guess ultimately it could just be not physical death in some way. Could be. You know? It could be death of... The, I guess the self in, in a sense, maybe damaging your spiritual body to the point that it can never, you, you'll have to die before it can be repaired. That's True. that's what I was thinking of. It's just of being cut off in this lifetime of like, you're going to have to wait for the, your next spin on the carousel to try this again. Yeah. You're done fucked up. Where's Jack Preston King when you need him? Presumably at his house. Yeah, fair. Throughout this, Donald, naturally, was growing more and more worried. During this period, he went to her bedside and tried, and failed, to rouse her. She was told not to respond to him, at least not yet. Her only choice was to continue on and hope that she could explain it all to him afterwards. So, 
They tried to climb the gates again, and as soon as they moved through them, her hallucinations became more and more intense. She failed again and again, scolded by Shadow Edward as, in physical reality, her body continued to cramp and a bad fever ravaged her body. Eventually, her spirit broke. Part of her was unable to stop hearing the Shadow Edward say that her heart is broken and that she will never enter heaven. She felt as if she was dying, hope and the will to live slipping from her. And it was in this moment, falling back, failing in her mind that she realized that the true Kundalini was within her and that she could never lose it. Edward didn't decide if she would go to heaven. That power belonged only to the Cosmic Father. She realized in that moment that her entire perception of the ritual had been a terrible hallucination. In fact, with that realization, the ritual was done. She didn't need to remain immobile and only did so because of the lying shadows which sought to further her misery. As she finally began moving her body, she felt herself ascending to the Cosmic Father. The Cosmic Father, Universe, and Edward congratulated her. She had done it. She had defeated the hallucination and won. So, she called to Donald, who tried to help her up before nausea overcame her. She could not yet stand or walk while her hip continued to heal. So, she had to teach Donald some of her nursing tricks to help her to the bathroom. And he did, like a good husband, Donald cared for her, cleaning her puke and excrements over the next few days. On Sunday, the Cosmic Father returned and bid her to look upon him, and to come with him to heaven. She saw an intense light and realized the door to the universe was inside her. She didn't have to leave because heaven was with her all along. Furthermore, she realized the images of the Father was for her benefit, as the Cosmic Father is everything. There is no way to view him, for we are within him. The universe told her, quote, I will tell you a secret. Everything but this is called illusion. Love is the first illusion. The Father is love and he is the one. She was then told to stand, and for the first time in nearly a week, she did, feeling fully healed and invigorated. Now, during the ritual and initiation, it was not possible to see or comprehend the seals. Her vision was veiled at the time. However, over the next few months, Edward had her sketch representations of the seals and explained the meaning of each. Which are cool looking. Yeah. Gate 1. The first and lowest gate is the gate that initiates the sequence and brings forth the energy of the universe from your core. It requires the presence of the universe to open. Jenny had to allow the universe to guide her to open this gate as it cannot be done alone. Gate number two is the seal of Mars and is the beginning of unity. It requires the surrender of the self to another, allowing one's being to be penetrated by that of another. This is meant to be a reminder of the unity between the Cosmic Father and all things. Gate number three is the seal of Mercury. The third seal is veiled, and the universe must step in to unveil it. Only the Great Mother can unveil the human soul, and this is the gate of great change. Gate number four is the seal of Venus. It represents a mother's love for her children, and is the gate of kindness and human fellowship. It marks the beginning of the divine love of the father and mother. It represents the passage of death to new life. As she was newborn, she could not remember the next three gates and had to be carried through them, as this stage of the soul begins to cleanse you of your impurities, and the light at the end becomes visible. Once one has passed the third gate, they may never return to any gate lower than the fourth. They are changed, and those lower levels now hold nothing for them. 
one must exercise traveling to the higher gates until one can dwell there, the ultimate goal being to reside in the highest gate in perfect unity with the Cosmic Father, something that cannot be accomplished while alive. Crossing the third gate is the beginning of the end of the soul's earthly journey as afterwards they will continue their evolution into the spiritual world. Gate number five is the seal of Jupiter. This is symbolic of divine royalty and is at the foot of heaven. This is the soul being overtaken by love and the power of the Father, and is here that the soul begins approaching true purity. Gate number six is the seal of the moon. This is the gate of the mother. In this gate is only reflected light of the Father, which shines from him and is reflected by the mother in perfect unity. It is life in the perfection of the Father's light, while the Father's gate is one of singular unity. The mother's gate is the home of all life. This is the source of life. Gate number seven is the seal of the sun and is the cosmic father. It is absolute unity with the source, the dissolution of self into the whole. It represents transcendence from the physical world and freedom to pursue spiritual endeavors and holy missions. This is the highest level one can reach while living in this world. In chapter 8, she describes the recovery period after the initiation. She had to return to a stage of physical, mental, and spiritual equilibrium, which took several weeks after which she could continue her training, which has continued to this day. Post-initiation, she was overloaded with input from the spirit world. Her psychic abilities greatly enhanced. She essentially had to learn how to walk again spiritually, as she was now a different spiritual entity altogether. She first learned how to turn her spiritual perceptions on and off, despite not wanting to cut herself off. The constant input was making it hard to be a person in the world, and in the end, Edward insisted she learn how to suppress her abilities for periods of time by focusing on the physical world and the things within it that still draw her to it, like her husband. Part of the issue was her continued attachment to David, which was getting in the way of her connection to the universe. She had to surrender that attachment. Donald helped her focus more on the physical world as she slowly returned to Earth. She also learned to alleviate pain without drugs. By picturing that part of her body opening and directing energy into it, this greatly reduced the number of pills that she was taking. She also noticed her food tolerance had changed. Meat and corn caused flu-like reactions in her. The only meat that she could tolerate was fish. These restrictions slowly faded over the course of a month as she returned fully to Earth. She focused on returning to work and helping her patients. The key lies in surrendering control. In placing your trust in the universe and in the cosmic father, one must not do, they must let go and allow. In chapter 9, she talks about another portion of her training. Jenny had to memorize the emerald tablet of Hermes Trismegistus. Trismegistus. And chose the English version that appeared in Henry Cornelius Agrippa's Three Books of Occult Philosophy. Donald had done the translating himself, translating from multiple Latin texts and one Arabic version. The Emerald Tablet, in 13 lines, spells out what many alchemists and magicians consider to be the greatest secret of alchemy. It appears to be instructions on turning lead to gold, but these are only symbolic of the transformation of the human soul. Jenny later came to believe that the 13 stages described in the tablet are perfect allegories for for the steps taken in her personal transformation, which she does in a line-by-line breakdown in the book. And I did truly want to put all of that in here, but for the sake of time, it got the axe. It's also pretty dense. Yeah, so if you want that breakdown, uh, get the book. 
But over the next two years, she went through many changes as a result of her initiation. While her work with Edward and David has continued, she has since had a realization which altered her perception on those interactions. This realization being that, quote, time is not linear, and what happens in the afterlife is even more complex than life's choices during physical incarnation. I do not contact the same aspect of their personalities all the time. The non-physical aspects of all personalities are not subject to time and space limitation. Various aspects of their personalities may have been in contact with me through the entire process of my spiritual development. Understanding the interaction between physical life and spirit has been a primary focus of the past couple of years. One of the biggest things she had to change was her dubious views on reincarnation. She thought it was too earth egocentric. Edward taught her about another life that he had lived on earth where he used his psychic abilities to help others instead of seeking personal fame. She was led to a 16th century book he claimed to have written in that life, and when comparing it to Edward's other writings, she came to believe that the mind behind both were in fact one and the same. The longer she goes from initiation, the less she sees the cosmic father and the universe as separate. They are source, the true unity at the core of existence, yet within that unity, diversity. Quote, each conscious awareness within the whole is cherished much in the same way a mother cherishes a child within her womb or a newborn baby. And this was a difficult concept for her to deal with, as she had shed many of her notions of individuality. In turn, she came to view her being as far more complex than a simple earthly incarnation. Her growth, decisions, and development impact those of everyone around her and them in turn. Humanity evolves both as individuals and as a collective whole. Life and consciousness grow and evolve as a unit impacted by the decisions of individual personalities within it. That is, all life, not just the life here on Earth. Quote, Not only do we develop as a species, but other species, including non-terrestrial species, develop with us. Our development affects them and vice versa. Every decision made generates and creates new probabilities and new aspects of these probabilities. And from here, Jenny talks about the implications for spirit communication. She says that the personality can be reached as long as it is open to communicate, and that this is true regardless of the person's state of incarnation, which means one can communicate with the personalities of people who died and have since reincarnated, or even converse with your own personality, allowing you to speak with past and future versions of yourself. Which I thought was just a very interesting idea. Mm -hmm. I, I want a council of Nicks. Uh, angels do this as well. In the Enochian diaries, angels often combine names or change names. When this occurs, she explains that the primary aspects become separated and then are recombined to form a different personality. She talks about physical manifestations and time displacement communication. That all psychic and physical phenomenon are generated when the conscious mind steps aside and allows a thought form to influence its environment. These include miraculous healings, but also that all possibilities and eventualities exist within the unity simultaneously, which, admittedly, is very confusing. From here, she talks about her future and how she doesn't think about where her journey will end. Her only concern is learning about love and becoming more loving as to emulate the perfect love of the universe. All the skills she is learning, clairaudience, clairvoyance, remote viewing, automatic writing, these are all just ways of connecting the subtle mind to the conscious mind. 
but more than anything, she seeks to help awaken others to this true reality. And this is going to lead into our last discussion question. But before I dive in, there is a whole other half of this book that we're not going to go into, and that's because it's just all about practical application of all of these things that she's told us about in her story. And like I said, I'm not going to go into it as honestly it would make a little bit of dry listening, but I will say this, a lot of it is very good uh, techniques that can be found in many, many texts. Um, and it's mostly like about cleaning up your life, some tips and tricks about talking with spirits. Um, but Scrying. Scrying, yeah. There's all sorts of different things that are in that whole latter half of the book. I will say this bit, though, as a kind of um, disclaimer. Take all of the audio editing stuff with a humongous grain of salt because there is uh, just actual inaccuracies. Like she says, speed and pitch are the same thing, and that is so very not true. But I'm not going to go into it because it's kind of moot. It's irrelevant. You don't even have to use audio editing techniques for or a technology for any of this. I was actually around Rory when they read around when they read that part, and it was fun because when we were talking about it, I could see I wasn't talking to Rory. I was talking to the little audio file that lives <laughs> inside Rory, yeah. and it came up and possessed their flesh to air, to air their grievances. They, yeah. they, they took a photo of the section of the page and they sent it. To well, me. And, and, and that's that's how you know. That's how you know it really got under their skin. Yeah. They went to the, pro- the the trouble of pulling their goddamn phone out, taking a picture, <laughs> finding the correct chat, and then sending it to us. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. I mean, but I mean, it is one of the few things I'm weirdly passionate about is audio. So, uh, but anyway, for our fourth and final discussion question, uh, we have now gone through her whole journey and. The moral of the story is something that we honestly preach pretty constantly on this show. And it's love is the way forward, that we have to look beyond I and to this more global we. But in all of this, how do angels fit in here? They are a huge proponent of this whole book. She communicates with several. I cut out a whole section that just talks about the different angels that she communicated with, most of which we still went over in the summary. But what do you guys think that they are in the in the grand scheme of the greater phenomenon? And if the universe and the cosmic father are, let's say, that universal consciousness, what are the angels? So, so I do personally believe in angels. Um, as for as for what they are, I. I do believe that they are a, that they are a type of to just make very general quite obvious statements I do believe that they are a type of powerful somewhat culturally rooted metaphysical entity that can be contacted and worked with uh and likely need to be handled carefully just because and this was clearly not 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 Jenny's experience uh she very clearly had basically only positive experiences with angels. Uh, most other people that I've talked to that have evoked angels have basically said they are unpredictable and at times incredibly volatile and dangerous. But she was she was clear, again, divergent path. Uh, as for what they are, I, I tend to, and this is, this is quite ironic given that, that long rambling diatribe I had about cultural appropriation, 
the interpretation of them that has sat best with me throughout my life is honestly the is honestly the Jewish theological perspective is that they and demons kind of exist almost on opposite ends of the spectrum of their their whole they are embodiments of certain like certain theological or like metaphorical elements of they are they are beings of fire they are beings of truth they are beings of the day tuesday and and the only di- the main difference between demons and angels in that cosmology is uh, angels are entities of those of those elements that are that are beings of order beings of discipline beings of keeping keeping things in balance and where they are supposed to be whereas demons are elements of chaos they exploit those things in order not necessarily to cause harm harm but and just kind of to, to 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 stir the pot and make things crazy for a while, and that's that's kind of the interpretation that I feel most comfortable with is that these are is that angels are almost cosmic wardens that operate on a different plane of reality, and they are likely doing things that we don't fully understand, and that they seem to have some sort of investment or duty to. They they interact with us at times that are deemed inappropriate, and that they are most likely serving a larger entity that is their creator and leader, and likely their god. And that you know, in most interpretations, that 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 god is the Abrahamic god. So, but yeah, so I think they are they're order keepers. I think they're balance restorers, and I they are not. They are something that I believe in. They are something I am not meant to work with because the only one of them that I have ever reached out to in any capacity, the only way I can describe that interaction is he bit me. And uh, um, I'm uh, I'm not going to keep bothering him or any of his uh, any of the people that work for him. Fair. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think. Uh, all right. So I, there's a couple of different ways I'm looking at this. So if Jenny's right. Yeah. What, I guess what is Jenny's interpretation of what an angel is? They are, it's essentially the cosmic father, the God is a fractal entity and they are shards of divinity given kind of their own little container uh, that until their purpose is fulfilled, then they are reabsorbed into the whole, which is fine that, that I could totally see that divine homunculi. Yeah, I have. And I haven't thought too much, I guess, about my own feelings about angels. Um you know, I, I guess growing up, I, I did have, like many of us, I had that edgy period where I was very anti any Christian imagery uh, yeah. just because, you know, you, you hit teen years and you tend to rebel against anything that you were raised with. I wasn't raised in a religious setting, but at the same time, by growing up in America, I'm yes. raised in a Christian kind of theological frame point. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't really never give too much thought. I think... Ultimately, I do believe that there is a a good and there is a an opposite to that. I don't know if I want to call it evil. Uh, actually, Stephen King had his own breakdown of in some of his novels, uh, the purpose and the random. Yep. Uh, ah. Which is like so, angels would be like you're saying they're order keepers. They're of the purpose, whereas the random, they, it seems evil, but it's not. It's just things that disrupt order. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you just made me think about what book was that? Insomnia. Uh, the little doctors. Some of them are of purpose, and some are of uh 
random. That's such an interesting book of his because it's not well loved at all, and he doesn't even like it. Yeah, because and- its entire purpose—the entire purpose of that book—is to feed to the last chapter of that book so that it can be for one character in the last half or the last book of a of a long series. Yeah, it, it's it's an ancillary. It feels like an ancillary book to the Dark Tower series, but that's not yeah. neither here nor there. Um. The one thing I, I I think again, much like you, uh, Jay, I've never felt the need to commune with angels. If there is one looking out for me, great. I mean, I can probably that car accident I had when I was eighteen. If there was any sort of uh, that, probably if there's any moment in my life where there might have been angelic uh, encounter, that was it. Just because a lot of things lined up very uh, rapidly for me to survive. Yeah, because uh, I I could have very easily bled out in the car. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the only reason I'm alive is the car directly in front of us just so happened to see the accident happen, just so happened to stop and just so happened to contain two military paramedics just back from tour. Wow. Yeah. Like, and, and then when I got to the hospital, uh, the guy who reconstructed my spine is a top of the line neurosurgeon and he just so happened to have an opening in his schedule to see me. Like, you know, it, it's, it, it felt very, uh, serendipitous. So maybe maybe I did have a guardian angel look out for me there. I don't know. Personally, I feel like what angels probably are is they are another uh much like the various gods. They are just the set dressing that we are projecting ab- upon the divine. Uh and that some people need it to be an angel. They need that relationship and so it gives them that relationship. Uh now taking a giant step back and again looking at let's look at this from the keel perspective. I couldn't get this out of my head. Uh, if we look at the, this book, though, through the lens of John Keel, as we like to do, um, then unfortunately, what that would mean is Jenny Tyson is the victim of a hilarious and traumatizing con. Yeah. And that the non people and the ultra terrestrials have were just messing with her. Yeah. This whole time. And I don't want that to be true. Let me make clear. I really hope John Keel isn't correct. And I don't think he is fully correct. What a horribly elaborate, not at all funny prank. Right. And that's yeah. the thing. That's yeah. the thing. It's like I, I say prank, but it's really not. It, it is just ruining somebody's life by leading them down uh, endless rabbit holes. You just harassed a sick woman for 18 months. But that's that, not a prank. Well, that's, that's a thing, crime. Is, it, this is another one of those books where the entire time I was reading it, like every now and then I'd switch my brain over to, okay, how would I, how would John Keel look at this? How would, you know, Jacques Vallée look at this? How would all these various people that we've been ingesting look at this? And every time I switch to John Keel, like my feel is just like, oh, this poor woman, yeah. like, you know, very similar to how I feel about Woody. If John Keel is right, like, right. It, it, um, and I, again, I hope that's not the case. I, I hope, I hope Keel was, wasn't as smart as he sounds. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, and, and that said, I, I don't think, like I said before, I don't think he's completely correct. I think it's very likely uh, she did have a divine revelatory experience. It's just that I think it was likely dressed in the imagery and the iconography that she was prepared for, that she could accept. Yeah. And especially if you look at the fact that by her own admission for five years leading up to this whole initiatory experience, she had been doing deep dive research into Enochian magic, into Western esotericism, yeah. into alchemy. And then when it came time for her to have an enlightenment experience, guess what it was dressed in yeah it came as john d it came as edward kelly it came as these archetypical or iconic figures from that world of research um 
and, and I, I, I don't know that to me, that's that's the most likely scenario of what angels are is they are just another set dressing. That said, I, I could also see maybe they are a distinct type of entity all to their own. I but I have done I less than no research into it. Uh, my this book is the limit of angelic research I've done, and there was not a lot in here about uh, I think they call it angelology. Yeah, it's called angelology. So maybe we'll have to dig in a little bit more to angels uh, down the line. But I, I, yeah, I I tend to believe that they that she was given the experience she needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So ultimately, I I kind of like. I guess my opinion or my thoughts on it is I kind of fell into a, a, a few potential possibilities. Like personally, I think there's probably entities like angels out there. I've um, dabbled in trying to work with them in the past um, because I've always had a connection to Christian mythology. You know, growing up, like Nick said, in America, you can't not. Um, and so I I knew about angels, and then I was introduced to people who actively practiced this at the time, and they taught me some things. And like I said, I dabbled a little bit. Um, but I, if I was like looking at it in everything and how I look at everything now, I would compare angels in a way to something like how we compare or how we look at the Fey. Um, whether or not they're real, I I, I don't know. Um, but there are definitely interactions that seem to be like that, like these creatures, be them the fey folk, be them angels, be them goblins. I like, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know, but there are definitely people and things that have happened that seem like angelic intervention. So I think that like much of what we say here, I think there's something happening there. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's angels, if there's some other entity, or if that's just like Nick was saying, the form that it was taken for you to be able to accept what was happening. Maybe that's all any of it is. Uh, you know, and I guess that kind of feel that falls in line with with like Keel's thinking. And I I mean ultimately I I come back to does it matter? You know, does it matter if they're real or not? If my, if whatever it is helps me reach that next level of enlightenment, helps me get to my next stage. Um, and I think that whether or not it matters is up to the individual. If you need to find out whether or not they're real, then you're going to seek after that regardless of what I say, you know. Um, but I guess for me, I think, I think that there probably is other entities like angels out there. I think it's hard to imagine that there isn't something like that out there because there's so much that's happening anyway, regardless of whether or not we think they're angels or demons or, or any of this, that I think it's hard to say that there isn't some other kind of entity or creature out there. So ultimately, I think angels are something, which isn't helpful. I get that. Um, and I think it's probably, if you're interested in it, worth exploring. But I think if we can believe that aliens are real, if we can believe that Bigfoot is out there, if we can believe that fairies fuck with us on a day-to-day, then we can believe that the angel that there are angels that just want us to become enlightened. Once again, after 20 however many episodes we have arrived at, there is something. Okay, good. I'm glad that we, uh, all this academic work we've we have achieved an unprovable hypothesis. 
Yeah, that's step one, right? I mean, it's the only. It's just, I. I unfortunately believe it's probably as far as anyone will ever get in the history of humanity going forward. Because I'm not sure that these are things that our brains can actually comprehend in their reality. The maze isn't meant for us. Why'd you? I mean, yes, but you, you quoted a great show. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well. Well, let's go ahead and move into the about the author. Okay, so we don't have too much about Jenny, but that's okay. I have some extra bits about her contributor. Mr. Kelly. Uh, So about the author, Jenny Tyson lives in Nova Scotia, Canada, where she worked as a registered nurse until her retirement. She spent the last 12 years, as of the publication of this book, engaged in intensive research of spiritual practices, including shamanism, paganism, and Enochian magic. She is a clairaudient, meaning she receives psychic information via the ability to hear things others cannot. And she built upon the methods of Dr. D and Edward Kelly to, with the help from the other side, develop the system that we have been talking about for this entire episode. She is part of the Atlantic Fellowship Conference, the Atlantic Dowsing Association, and the Applied Precognition Project. Uh, She is also interested in hiking, trail running, and CE5, uh, human-initiated UFO contact. Awesome. So a little bit about her contributor, Sir Edward Kelly, a.k.a. Edward Talbot. Is he actually a sir? I don't know. That's just every, everything I found referred to him as Sir Edward Kelly. Knowing the life history that we got, he could have easily given himself that title. Uh, he was born on August 1st, 1555. He was an English Renaissance occultist and scryer who was best known for his pursuit of the Philosopher's Stone and his work channeling angels with Dr. John Dee. Uh, he had two siblings, Elizabeth and Thomas. Thomas later joined the Dee household and assisted there with their experiments. Uh, Little is known of his early life, except that he may have studied at Oxford and showed proficiency in both Greek and Latin. During his time working with Dee, he married the widow Jane Cooper of Chipping Norton and helped educate her two children, one of whom would become the poet Westonia. He spent a time traveling the European continent with Dee, and some claim the two men drove each other to the brink of insanity. (laughs) In March 1587, they were made to defend themselves against accusations of necromancy from the Catholic Church accusations which were likely correct no they were correct (laughs) after parting ways with d he gathered several wealthy european patrons and lived in relative comfort while continuing his alchemical work on behalf of the holy roman emperor rudolf ii for whom he was supposed to be creating alchemical gold Uh, he was briefly arrested for killing an official named jury hunkler in an unsanctioned duel but was (laughs) then released by the emperor He then returned to his alchemical work, and when he failed to produce gold for the emperor, was imprisoned again. He died in 1598 from injuries incurred while trying to escape prison. That, when I read some of that shit in the actual book, that is the wildest part of this entire story. It's like, okay, okay, okay. So he didn't go to prison for a long time because of that man he killed, but then the emperor's like, where's my fucking magic gold, Edward? And he's like, shrug emoji. And like, it's into the dungeon with you. Yep, and then he died running along the prison walls. Oh, God. Oh, God. Edward Kelly, wherever you are, you are hysterical, and you have brought such mirth into my life over the last week. Like I said, hot mess. Edward Kelly is a hot mess. I'm glad we got there. We've gotten to the core of this story. Please let that be the episode title. Uh, Hot mess. Edward Kelly is a hot mess. Uh, And the only other thing here is some of his works have survived to the modern day, including two alchemical treatises written in English and three others that were written in Latin for Emperor Rudolph. Ready to go into housekeeping? 
Housekeeping. 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 <laughs> I like the oh, I like the J sounded a little disappointed with that last one. Housekeeping. Like Eeyore came on the show. <laughs> My nickname was Eeyore when I was little. That makes a lot of sense. Anyway, so if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe on whatever streaming platform that you're listening to us on. And if it is Spotify or Apple, please leave us a review. Um, we prefer five stars, but we'll take whatever you give us. And if you, if there's anything on here that you wanted to talk to us about, you can go ahead and shoot us an email. If you want to give us book requests, recommendations, you can send it all to noctivianpodcast at gmail.com. And then please give us a follow on social media. We have a show uh, Twitter account at Noctivigant Pod, and I am at Mix Rory Wicks. I am at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And then we've got a flurry of other things like an Instagram, Noctivigant underscore podcast. We have a Reddit, Noctivigant Podcast. Uh, we have a Tumblr called Noctivigant Podcast. And as you can see, they're usually generally about our name, Noctivigant Podcast. But go ahead, give us a follow, interact with us. Like retweet all the things that I that I do from the show. It's we we're we're just trying to have a good time, talk about some fun weird ass shit like we do. Oh, we had, we do have one other thing we got to announce. Actually, two other things. What's that? Well, one in one week we're going to be talking to Jenny Tyson. That's right, we are. Yep. So, any questions you have for her after uh, listening to this, don't send them because we'll have already interviewed her by that point. Yeah. But that said, uh, we are going to be asking her about some of the questions that we had about this book, and I hopefully you had some similar ones. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's I think it'll be a good time. I well, think it's going to be awesome. But then the other bit of news, it's even bigger. In two weeks, it's going to start. The summer of Streber is here. The summer of Streber we have begins. So many uh, cool surprises lined up for oh, you guys. Yeah. This is going to be the first of what we hope to be many summer series. Yep. Uh, and I, I think this is going to be a good one. I'm already cracking into communion, which is where we're going to be beginning our journey. Yeah. Mine arrives in the mail today. Yeah. We're going to be taking on four different books of, uh, Whitley Strieber. The first three are, are older ones from the his initial run in the eighties. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to be covering one of his more modern pieces. Yeah. I'm, I'm very excited. I think this is going to be a great time. And like Nick said, we have quite a few surprises along the way. After the satanic panic book that I had to read, which was an amazing experience. The, the relief, listeners, the relief I felt when I ordered my book for Str- Summer of Streber on Audible and it said two hours and 19 yeah, he, minutes. He is a quick, he is a uh, brief writer. I, yeah. I, I, I wept with joy. I, I, I thanked my patron gods. I hugged my dog. It <laughs> was... <laughs> but I think that's it. Any final thoughts? Oh, God. I don't know. Witchy books hurt my brain way more than the other ones we've done. Well, I hate to break it to you, bud, but there's going to be a lot more coming. Yeah, I know. I know. And I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. Uh, it's definitely the, the, the most out on, a, out on a ledge that I've been in this show. I, even more so than true crime, just because I've at least uh, like watched true crime stuff. I've listened to true crime stuff. But I have never really gotten into the witchy stuff, even when I was actively practicing, because I was doing a very free form uh, type of practice. Mm-hmm. So I never felt the need to go and find guides, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's definitely a different kind of writing, uh, which, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what else is out there. If there's anything else out there that has a strong narrative like this, I'll probably like it. I got a, I got a few more already lined up. So good. Uh, my final thoughts are 
you know, that moment when she uh when she when she screwed up her heart healing session, like because her cats were screaming at the door because they really wanted to come talk to the spirit guide that she had in there. Like relatable. Uh, those yeah. those little like I I can't tell you the I've been how many times I've been in the middle of an intense like divination session and then Murphy's fat fucking ass is all <laughs> over my cards and he's knocking my decks everywhere and I'm trying to force him off of the ottoman I'm reading on and he's just like what are you doing yeah. I love you love me back and then he bites me and it's like <laughs> this is why you don't have a soul <laughs> or he does I mean he probably does when I look into his eyes I see light there he's perfect he is perfect. He's just very fat. On that note, I think we're going to take it out of here. So good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe out there. Get lost. Do not get lost. Stop taking Nick's advice about travel plans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably fair. I have the, the sense of direction of a dead cucumber. When we were in Las Vegas, you sprinted away from us into the crowds, and I was afraid we'd never find you again. I... <laughs> I had similar concerns. You guys would have found me on the Texas-Mexico border. I have sold half my organs. I have a coke addiction. And I, at some point, gained a lemur. Yeah, that's Vegas. After all this, after everything that we read and that we just talked about, the only conclusion that I can come to is that we still have no fucking idea what's happening.